Hey, this is Matt Markin, and you're listening to episode 50 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In today's giant size episode, we interview Dr. Kyle Ross from Oregon State University, Dr. Xiao Yuan from Niagara University, Jamie Engel from DePaul University, and Dr. Melinda Anderson from the Nakata Executive Office. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Advising Podcast, and on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Episode 50, here we go. Welcome to episode 50 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. We have made it to 2022. Happy New Year. This is a jam-packed episode, so let's dive right in. Leslie Ross is back with me to interview our first guest, current Nakata president, Dr. Kyle Ross. So first up on our 50th episode, we have Dr. Kyle Ross. Kyle is the head academic advisor for the College of Business at Oregon State University and has over 10 years of advising experience. Prior to this position, he was an advisor at Washington State University for a variety of departments and also at Eastern Washington University. He joined Nakata in 2012 and has served as chair of the Undecided and Exploratory Students Advising Community as a division representative on the council, as a board member, and as a leader and mentor in the Emerging Leaders Program. He's also served on his region steering committee and in a variety of committees and advisory boards. He has presented and published on parallel planning, advising alternatives, and solution-focused techniques in advising. And to top it off, Kyle is the president of Nakata for the 2021-2022 term. Kyle earned his bachelor's in psychology through the University of Washington, his master's in counseling, and his doctorate in educational leadership from Washington State University. His dissertation focused on using action research methods to learn about student attrition from an online nursing program and to implement support, retention, and completion strategies. Kyle was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona, and moved to the Pacific Northwest when he was 16 years old and has loved the region ever since. He studied classical piano for 20 years. He also participates in community theater as much as he can, acting in both plays and musicals. His favorite book series is Ender's Game. He is also an avid gamer with current favorites being Warframe and League of Legends. He is also a nerd and plays in three separate Dungeons and Dragons campaigns currently with his favorite class being Warlock. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. So I think this is going to be a fun, fun interview. And just as we finish reading your bio, we have a special guest host who I'm going to go ahead and add to this interview right now. And that is with Leslie Ross. Hi, Kyle. No relation. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Leslie. How are you? Great. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you about your experience with Nakata. Yeah, it's good to see you today. Yeah, so it's perfect timing, Leslie. So we just introduced Kyle to the podcast. We got to read his bio. So we're going to throw the first question to Kyle. And Kyle, can you give us your journey into advising and to higher ed, how you got where you're at? Yeah, certainly. Um, so uh, my story is kind of funny. Uh, you know, the common phrase is you, you stumble your way into advising and not everyone knows they want to be an advisor at the get go. Well, I did. Um, I, uh, when I was an undergrad, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do my first year at um, UW and um, thought about math, pre-med, a few other options. Um, and when I met with an advisor, I had a really disheartening experience because I told him I had no idea what I wanted to do, how to even pick a major out of the 150 some odd majors there. 
And, and the person was like, I, I can't help you if you don't know what you want to do. So um, I went back to my room and spent a whole weekend learning about the catalog, degree audits, what if reports in the degree audit, and started figuring out class planning and stuff in the next term. Um, pretty quickly realized after that I wanted to major in psychology. And I also started helping my friends out on the floor. Totally not ethical, by the way. Side note, don't do this. Um, uh, but I would help my uh, peers figure out their degree audits, understand <clears throat> what classes to take, uh, who to contact for more advising and things. And pretty soon after doing that, about 15 or 16 times in a given term, my roommate turned around and was like, and you don't know what you want to do for the rest of your life? Um, so at that point, I thought, well, I really um, want to do that for high school students. So I got my master's in counseling to pursue becoming a high school um, counselor and did my internship and realized, you know, this wasn't the, the best fit for me. As much as I loved the students, there was just some different rules, regulations and procedures that makes it a, a little bit harder. Um, so then I realized I wanted to uh, become a full time academic advisor at that point. So then I applied for a bunch of jobs. You know, it's kind of hard breaking into advising without prior advising experience. But then WSU gave me a chance. Uh, Dr. Susan Poe, who was the director of the Center for Advising and Career Development at the time at WSU, um, hired me. And I started off as an undecided and exploratory student advisor at that point. So helping students figure out what they want to major in, uh, which was a really great fit for me for my first position. Um yeah, and I've loved it since. So 10 years later, still on advising. Now I'm a head academic advisor for Oregon State University. Uh, I moved over to Oregon June of 2020, so during the pandemic, which was a bit of an adjustment. Um, but now I supervise a team of 12 professional advisors who uh, all advise college business students. Wonderful opportunity. It's super fun to transition to administration, but still have my foot in the door a little bit to work with students directly. Yeah, so that's been my start, and here I am now. So, Kyle, one of my questions for you is, how did you get involved with Nakata? Yeah, great question. Um, so when I started at the CACD, Center for Advising Career Development at WSU, uh, my first supervisor was Lisa Lafter, uh, who then used, uh, worked at the UC system for a bit. Um, I think she's now uh, pursuing full-time professional and life coaching at this point. I'd still be advising. I'm not sure. I'm not on Facebook anymore, but Lisa, if you're listening, hi, Lisa, I miss you. Uh, so Lisa was my first direct supervisor, and she was really engaged in NACADA at that time. Uh, she was chair of the Member and Career Services Committee that was up and running at that point. Um, she was really involved in the region. The year prior, she had just won Region 8 Best of Region presentation, so I got to see her pre-conference um, my first year as an advisor. And couple months into it, she introduced me to the WCU Academic Advising Association, so our specific chapter of um, Nakata there, and started introducing me to colleagues. And then um, there was a local one-day drive-in conference at the University of Idaho for an advising symposium where Dr. Charlie Nutt um, presented as a keynote. And I was like, he is awesome. And that looks really fun. Uh, I want to present at some point. And I felt really inspired at that point to, you know, give my give a shot at presenting at some point, um, thinking about sharing my expertise when I developed it at some point in time. So I told Lisa that, uh, I want to say that was closer to December, about five months into my job. And she's like, great proposals closed for the region eight conference in a month. Why don't you and I co-present something? Um, 
And so uh, we submitted a proposal. I didn't think it was going to get accepted, but it did. And so we presented on facilitating that um, supervisor-supervisee relationship effectively in advising um, and had a lot of fun putting that together. And that's when I got to my first Nakata event, which was the Region 8 conference in 2012, which was held in Portland. Um, so I'm really excited that 10 years later, we'll be having the annual conference in um, Portland for 2022. So that's how I got started and have been hooked on Nakata ever since. Yeah. And anyone listening to this in January, proposals are open to submit for for the Portland conference. So get get your submission in, whether it's a poster session, concurrent session, pre-conference, go with a group or individually. So um, this was not planned. I just want to throw it out there because Kyle mentioned Portland. And fast forward, you're now Nakata president. So congratulations on that. And I guess, what was it wanting to like, what made you kind of want to put your your name in there in terms of, you know, maybe becoming president? And now that you are president, any goals that you have set as president? Yeah, um, so I've always been really inspired by Nakata as an association and all the things it does for its membership and how we ultimately promote student success through excellent academic advising. You know, it's my professional home. Every year there's an annual conference or region conference. It feels like I'm going to my third home uh, away from home and everything. Um, And it's just a wonderful experience. So ever since I got started with Nakata and the relationships I built, I knew I wanted to give back to the association in some way, shape or form and wanted to figure out how I could do that. Um, So as soon as I even got engaged in the 2012 region conference, I was like, Hey, I want to help plan the next um, region conference. And so I was on the program committee, like the committee for putting the actual program together for the 2013 conference in Alaska um, for region eight. And, um, so I, I immediately started seeking out opportunities to find ways to volunteer my time and contribute to the association. And early on, I was like, you know, one day, if there is ever a way I could ever serve as president, that would be an amazing way to say uh, I gave back in the fullest extent that I possibly could. Um, so that was why I always kind of had my eye on and aspiration towards that position in the long run, because I just felt that that was going to be how I really wanted to give back and contribute to the association in a meaningful way had no idea how to get there um, and where to start or what guidance to go for with that. So 2014, um, the first annual conference there uh, was my first annual conference I got to go to, and that was in Salt Lake. Uh, So I went there and uh, went to the first time attendee session and they divided us up by like what population we were interested in serving. So I stood in the undecided exploratory students part and it was just me. Um, and so I stood there and I was like, oh, this is fun. Uh, and, and then David Spite came up to me at that point and introduced himself, um, really talked about the association with me. Uh, I don't think he even mentioned he was on the board at that time. He was very uh, humble about that and just, you know, just introduced himself as a normal member in the association that just knows a lot about how it all goes. And uh, in that moment, he's like, you should run for chair of the Undecided Exploratory Students Group. Um, at that time, it was a commission before we merged commissions and interest groups into advising communities. And so that's how I got started in Nakata leadership was just running for that. Um, and then a couple of years later, figuring out what does that mean in terms of next steps and what directions to pursue, I applied to be an emerging leader for the Emerging Leaders Program to seek out a formal mentor who could help really 
use, uh, figure out where my strengths are and how to use that in the association. And that's how I got paired with Nathan Vickers, who uh, was vice president um, of the association. And, oh, my God, knew so much about the association, the ins and outs of all the different divisions, the structure. And he really helped me pursue multiple avenues all at the same time, you know, getting involved in the region division, the admin division, and the advising communities division all at the same time. Um, and really figuring out which area kind of I land best in, do the best work for. And then that uh, kept me going forward with the advising communities division. From there, I uh, then served as division representative on the council and eventually moved up to the board. So then two years later on the board, it was my opportunity to run for president. Um, gave it a lot of thought. Initially, I was like, you know what? Um, I should not be the person to be president of this association. Um, and a few people encouraged me to say, you know, uh, run anyway, submit your interests, show you want to do this, your commitment, see what happens. Um, and, you know, if you're not uh, selected, then you already knew that this wasn't your time or your place to be the president. That's fine. If you're selected, then that means it is the time and do it. Um, so I did. I ultimately did not win. Um, Melinda, Dr. Melinda Anderson, uh, who's now the executive director of the association, um, won president, which was perfect. I, you know, I called her the day of and I was like, Madam President! <laughs> you know, I was just so excited for her and over the moon for her because she is just a fantastic advising professional, advising administrator, and person and friend. Um, so she was elected president while also applying for the executive director job. And then she was ultimately hired. So at that point, the board had to decide how do they want to proceed from there. And the board decided to go with um, second place in the most votes uh, for the president. That was me. And here I am. Um, so really excited to be working with Melinda pretty closely since she's the executive director and doing a tremendous job at it. Um, she's, she's the perfect fit for that position. Um, been a really fun year so far. So I guess this is a uh, opportunity to say congratulations also and watch what you uh, wish for, Kyle, because you never know. You thought you lost and now you won. <laughs> right. But it's been awesome. You know, uh, the board's great. We've been going through a lot of really good work together. Um, I definitely learned a lot of, uh, for myself as a leader and as a facilitator that um, really quickly I needed to work on and improve my skills around. So it's also really um, helpful for me to see my areas of improvement, but also feeling like I am giving back to the association in the way that I've been wanting to. Sir, what are your goals for your presidency? What would you like to see Nakata accomplish? Yeah, so most of my goals are just continuation of efforts that have been going on in the association for a long while. Um, my intent was to not come in and say, I want to do X, Y, or Z, but rather the A, B, and C have already been in motion. So how do we make sure that those actually come to fruition and make sure that they do happen? So a few uh, tasks and goals included, um, you know, I was a part of a, a working group to review the bylaws of the association. So we went through about a year and a half long process to review those and wanting to make sure that that gets um through a board review comprehensively and that it's the way that they should be written and structured. So that's been one goal. Um, there has been a lot of work from the race, ethnicity, inclusion work group that has been elevated to the board for review. Part of that has been um, they proposed moving a lot of their work into a newly formed advisory board, 
the Inclusion and Engagement Training Advisory Board, name pending. Um, there's a task force kind of forming that group, members, chair, and potentially their um, the name, but also their function, mission, and goals. Um, so wanting to make sure that that gets on its feet and um, standing because that was approved in the prior board. So just wanting to make sure that that does happen. Um, a couple of other things. We did uh, just approve a new vision, mission, and strategic goals. Uh, so we had a vision and mission statement and goal statements that have been around in the association for several years now. And we are at a very different time in the association, um, and certainly for a variety of catalysts for organizational change at that point. But we knew uh, we're heading into kind of a new era for NACADA. Um, president Olivares noted that in her term as president in an academic advising today article. And she felt like we were heading into this new era of advising. I really support that. So we, the board um, drafted up new vision, mission, and strategic goal statements. So the next step for that is to benchmark the strategic goals into what steps can be completed in a year, what steps should be completed in by 2024 or by 2026 to accomplish these overall goals. So that's a um, work that will be ongoing this year and hopefully uh, we'll have solidified by the end of this year. Um, term year, not calendar year. <laughs> Uh, we need more time for that. And uh, we're also looking at structure review. So several different initiatives um, have really called for it's time to review the structure of the association. So there was wonderful work done for a region review um, that we are now on steps of how do we implement the recommendations. We're getting very close to releasing here are the recommendations that the board has approved and which groups are responsible for executing those recommendations. I'm really excited about that, but that was one piece. So the region review really showing that we have ways we can improve or reconsider how we engage with members in the region division. Uh, the race, ethnicity, inclusion work group highlighted that we should consider a structure review just to see if there are any hidden barriers to access, uh, member engagement, professional development, leadership roles overall um, that we want to consider so that was another catalyst. And then another catalyst was the new vision, mission, and goals. You want your structure to make sure it supports the work that needs to be done around those pieces now. Um, and then lastly, the structure of the association has largely been intact um, since 1999-2000 timeframe. So, you know, 20 years later, we have membership numbers that are doubled or even tripled at some points in time. Um, we're a very different organization now than we were then um, in a lot of really good ways. And so it's just time to kind of give it another look and say, is this still supporting the work that we need to do? And that could very well be the answer. Yes, we don't really need to change anything because everything is doing great and fine and successful, but we also might see that there are some needs for change. So we're uh, getting ready to start a multi-phase effort around a structure review. Um, and so there will be more details about that released in future academic advising today articles I write, but that is certainly something that we want to make sure also happens as a product of the REI work um, and region review work. Um, yeah. And that's all I can think of off the top of my head at this point. So uh, that's certainly plenty of work for the board to accomplish over the next um, 10 months before our term is up. Yeah. That's a, a lot of things going on, but that means that work is getting done. Conversations are are being had, you know, and then things are going to be progressing. And there's that usually means that there's going to be positive impacts with that. 
Um, one thing I do wish is that the president pres- president term is more than one year because <laughs> it almost feels like once you actually get through that whole year, like you're learning the ropes and then you're done. And, you know, can you get a second year just to implement some of those ideas? So maybe that's something that can be worked on as well. But as as a new member, Nakata member, or even just like a veteran, you know, Nakata member, someone who's very seasoned, they, they've been around, they've attended conferences, they've attended webinars, they've networked. Sometimes the structure of Nakata can be really confusing. You know, you have boards and councils, regions, you have chairs, you have things that you get nominated for or put your name in the hat for, others that maybe you get picked for. Not that you have to go through everything, but if someone came up to you and said, Kyle, can you help me help explain the Nakata organization? How, how would you describe that? Yeah, I have given that talk quite a bit to folks. Uh, how to do this uh, succinctly, but get the information across is always a really good question. You know, there's a lot in the association. The association's a large association, right? You know, our membership fluctuates between 10 to 15,000 members at any given point in time. So but inherently, that means large structure, lots of things. Um, so the best way I can describe this is through the division structure of the association. So Nakata um, consists of three divisions that um, carry out the majority of work of the association. So we've got the administrative division, the region division, and the advising communities division. So each of those divisions is responsible for ensuring programming um, is run in a way that aligns with our members' needs and interests, but they do so differently. So the region division engages with members based on ge- geographical location. So folks who are close by borders, how do we bring them all together? Um, and how do we engage those members who are closer in a region that might have very similar advising issues for their students at large um, or just geographical interests that shape their work overall? So we divide into 10 different regions. Um, Each region has a steering committee that uh, helps with planning the region conference, communications, professional development, member engagement, variety of different tasks. Um, So in the region steering committees, folks are really interested in giving back to their region, wanting to volunteer that time there. They can run for certain roles that are elected, and that depends on the region. So each region steering committees their structure is dictated by their operating principles. So in their operating principles, it could say that this state liaison is elected, this state liaison is appointed. Um, this chair or coordinator is elected, this one's appointed. So it depends on the role. Um, appointed means that you're putting your name in the hat for consideration by folks who will select a person for that role. Elected means you're running and then your region constituents are voting for you at that point. <clears throat> so, that's one group you could get involved in as a region steering committee. And then you could also consider chairing your region, which would mean chairing the region steering committee overall. So we have region chairs, 10 of those, and they are all elected um, by their regions. So if you want to run for region eight chair, then the region eight members will vote for region eight chair when their term goes. And so each of those terms are two years long. Um, The advising communities division is all around folks' interests regarding specific populations they advise, institutional type they advise in, um, student needs and situations, theories, approaches, models to advising. 
So the advising community division is all, all about helping advisors advise students across institutional types, across um, populations, across um, different issues in advising that impact student success. So in each of, we have 37 now, yeah, 38, over 35 advising communities. There are a lot, lots of different things that advisors do, right? Um, and so each of those advising communities has a steering committee as well. Um, so you could serve on your advising community steering committee. Um, most of those are appointed by the chair. You uh, would contact the chair to say you're interested at that point. Um, you could also serve as an advising community chair for two years, which is an elected position. All 30-some chairs are elected. Um, and then from there, uh, since that group itself, that division overall is very large, uh, it's harder for folks to kind of manage that entire division. So there's a next kind of level up there where we have cluster representatives. So we organize all of those advising communities into clusters, just random assignment um, of groups. So that way a cluster representative who's been a chair can help mentor other chairs and be successful in their role. And that takes that supervision of 30 some chairs and consolidates it to nine folks who work with them instead of a couple of folks. Um, I'll get to division representatives in a second, but just wanting to talk about that cluster rep role for a little bit. And so cluster representatives are appointed by the division representatives. So those folks would say, Hey, I'm interested in mentoring other chairs at that point. And then we have the administrative division, which is uh, about carrying out a lot of the work of the association that is done through formal programming. So the Emerging Leaders Program, the institutes, the annual conference, international conference, but also around things that really align with the strategic goals. So professional development, sustainable leadership, um, inclusion and engagement. Uh, so those are all helping ensure that programming meets those goals and then also um, what the entire association can do for its members around those areas and to help that those that programming excel. So we divide those up into two different groups. We've got committees that are more strategic goal focused. So thinking through, okay, inclusion and engagement, what does that mean for our members? How do we become a more inclusive association? How do we maximize member engagement or sustainable leadership? How do we prepare new leaders and also ensure some succession and continued engagement with the association? We've got committees and then we've got advisory boards that are specific to um, very um, specific uh, programming in the association. So the Emerging Leaders Program, Annual Conference Programming, Webinars, etc. So for those folks uh, to serve on a committee or an advisory board, you have to serve as a formal member of one of those groups. So you contact the chair and say, hey, I'm interested in serving as a committee member and as an advisory board member. Those are appointed by the chair specifically. Um, and they evaluate just needs because each committee or advisory board is a little bit different. Some need larger groups of membership. Others need smaller and a little bit more mobile groups. So there's no magic number there where we say there's 15 members per committee or advisory board. Those are all appointed, but committee chairs are elected by committee members. Advisory board chairs are appointed um, by division representatives and the board. Um, so they figure out who's the person with the most expertise to help continue on that programming. So those are the three divisions and what they do. Now that captures a large majority of the work of the association that is volunteer member driven. 
We have the executive office that is staffed employees that are helping carry out and support that work. So there's a lot of work that goes over there as well. And then there's some work that exists outside of the divisions that are largely coordinated by the executive office. So that could be, you know, the journal um, and publications overall, um, where the journal has their own editorial board driving what articles get published and things like that. So then as folks want to consider uh, pursuing um, higher up level positions um, after being a chair of one of these groups, they certainly can do so. There's two different entities that kind of help oversee the larger work of the association. So first there's the council, which consists of division representatives from each of the three divisions. And so you've got two representatives from advising communities division, two representatives from the administrative division, and two representatives from the region division. Each of those, we've got one elected from the chairs of the respective divisions and then one appointed um, from the division reps and the board help appoint those. So six division representatives that work with the vice president of the association. Vice president convenes the council and they're bringing up the grassroots issues of the organization. So, you know, steering committee of a region says, hey, this might be a problem. Um, The region looks at and says, yep, this is an issue, but it's not just our region. It's multiple regions. So now we're going to bring it up to the entire region division. Then those division reps can say, yep, that just impacts our division or hold on. This impacts everybody. So we should bring this up to the council at this point to think through what do we want to do about this strategically. Um, And then sometimes the council will say, we need the board to engage in this and think through what this means for the next five years rather than how we're going to triage this right now. So the council is focusing on the now issues of the organization. So what is going on immediately and how do we address that issue? What initiatives do we want to pursue next year or two? And so a lot of work gets done with the division reps collaboratively to think through how do our different divisions really work together? How are they different? Um, And elevating those issues that do come up from the members of wants and needs of the association. The board then thinks through the strategic management of the organization. So the board of directors is nine board members that are all elected for three-year terms. So that's a little bit different. Most other positions are two-year terms in the association. The board is an elected three-year term. Um, And so serving on the board of directors, you elect three people per year, and that makes the nine. Um, And they're thinking through issues that are going to take us into the next five or ten years of the organization. So removing themselves a little bit from those now issues that need to be addressed, letting the council do their work, they're thinking through, well, the vision, mission, strategic goals are going to be work that continues on for the next 10 years. What does that mean for us? Um, How do we strategically place the need of forming a new group in the association? Where does that belong or exist? Um, How do we conduct a review of the structure of the association that's going to impact literally everybody in the future if it changes? Um, so the board, uh, is more of a strategic operations, more of a thinking five years out from now, um, issues of the organization. And so then that is convened and facilitated by the president. So the president and the vice president serve as board members. Um, and in order to serve as a vice president, president, you need to be elected to the board first. So your first year you're serving on the board, you're learning, and then you're deciding if you want to pursue an officer role for your second or third year. So you could be a board member your first year, president the second year, board member your third year, or you could be board member your first year, vice president your second year, president your third year. In my case, I was board member for two years, and now in my third year, I'm president. 
Um, and so those two positions and the board of directors overall are elected by the entire membership of voting members. So that's the association at large, where all the work kind of lands and how you would get into those roles as briefly as I can. Sorry. You summarize that so well. I I'm impressed because you have no notes in front of you. I'm like, what? <laughs> I've talked about this a lot. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. So you've also presented and published on some parallel planning. And I would was hoping that you could describe what parallel planning is and the benefits of it. Sure. Uh, I wish I had Billy Struford here right now because uh, she is a great partner and colleague in this. So Billy Struford, Augustana University, um, and a PhD student with um, Kansas State University in the first academic advising PhD cohort. Wonderful person. Uh, unfathomably smart. Holy crap, she's so smart. Um, so she, we work together to talk about parallel planning and advising alternatives. So, you know, there's two different strategies when you're working with students to disengage from their career goals that they might be anchored in right now or their major or academic goals and re-engage in other ones that might be a better fit for them more timely or could be a forced shift due to whatever reason. Um, that happens a lot with careers, right? You know, you get into an accident, maybe you can't carry out your specific career anymore and you need to think about what you're going to do next. So there's always two ways you can work with students through that. You can proactively help them out with parallel planning, thinking through, you know, it's not a no now, but what happens if you need to disengage from your goal and re-engage in a new one? Um, how can you be prepared for that in the event that that does happen? Or if you have multiple interests, how can you engage in all of them at the same time until the paths need to diverge again? And then how do you pick which one to go on or disengage and re-engage on the path. So that's all parallel planning. That's the proactive side. So you're interested in art and business. Cool. Let's look at how those, what your first couple of years looks like, how the curriculum kind of overlaps with each other, um, how you can stay engaged in both programs until maybe the curriculum diverges so much that you have to choose business or art or maybe a little bit of both in a different way. Um, or maybe one of them is competitive admissions and you need to be prepared for what happens if you don't get admitted to that program. You know, there's really effective ways to go about parallel planning. And one of the, the biggest risks with it is triggering imposter syndrome in students. And then the minute you say, but what if you might come across as that person that says you can't, not just the, the I want to make sure you have all these plans in mind because anything could happen they're thinking, oh, this person just doesn't believe in me at this point. So in a way that normalizes it for students. So that's why I'm a huge proponent of, you know, if you teach like a first year engagement course or, you know, a transfer transition seminar, that's where you uh, talk about this content is in front of everybody. So it's not just the I'm singling you out as you need to think through this, but at large of this is a very normal process to go through and think about for everybody, regardless if you're the perfect 4.0 student or the student that has 500 interests that they want to pursue simultaneously. Um, and then on the other side of it is that reactive moment, the moment that goal disengagement becomes a requirement. So that's where we talk about advising for alternatives. So there is that selective program and they didn't get into it or something is forcing them out of their ultimate career goal choice right now. 
Um, what does that mean for them? How do we have that conversation, which can often be at a time of crisis? Um, and how do we make that a positive experience for students? So on the parallel planning side, you know, it's all about um, trying to make sure that students understand that this is totally normal and a really good thing for them to do and engage with to maximize their educational experience. Um, and then on the alternative advising side, it's really helping students process that crisis and that potential trauma and then move forward in a positive way. Do you feel there's any misconceptions that people might have about parallel planning or alternatives? Like, do they think it's just the plan B? Um, you know, any, any, any ideas with that? Yeah, it's definitely not a backup or a plan B or your emergency plan or in case of fire, use this. Uh, you know, that really uh, immediately creates this tone of it's less than. And parallel planning is all about it's not less than, it's equally valuable and um, worthy of pursuit for the student. So it's not that, well, if I don't get into this, I'll just settle and go for this. It's I am choosing to engage in this plan instead because it's equally valuable and rewarding and aligned with my interests. And if students have a hard time figuring out that equally valid valid path is, that's where we start talking about there are other ways to kind of parallel plan. Maybe you're thinking about applying to multiple schools with that same type of program that are all selective. I did that a lot with nursing admissions. So for a few years, I was the uh, transfer academic coordinator for WCU's College of Nursing. So helping students understand how their courses would transfer, what requirements they needed to meet to be eligible to apply to our nursing program. And it was insanely competitive. But what I quickly realized is four different colleges in a very immediate vicinity of maybe a two-hour driving distance across each other all had four very different admission systems. So whereas ours was very GPA heavy, another school was very work experience heavy. And another school was a little bit of both. Um, And so then pretty quickly you could say it's not about this school saying no and all your dreams are shattered at this point. It's there is a system that works with you and will favor the strengths that you bring. Let's find that one. And so parallel planning can exist that way too. But the last thing you want to think about it is is as a emergency plan, backup plan, because that's also going to just make students feel like they're pursuing something that they really never wanted to in the first place. Kyle, is there anything that you or any advice that you give to people uh, when they come up to you and they say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about taking the leap and getting my PhD, what would you say? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into the admissions game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Oh, good question. I think I'm actually now ready to answer that in a positive way because there's always that moment after you complete your degree that you're like, don't do this. <laughs> so... Um, You know, what I would say is have very specific goals in mind. Um, You know, for a lot of folks, so I did my doctorate while I was working full-time as an academic advisor. So I was in school part-time and 
working 40 hours plus a week at the same time and then also engaged with Nakata. So when you think about a doctorate or a master's degree in a different field or however you want to advance yourself, that is a huge, significant personal investment on your end. And you want to think really hard about what those end game goals are for you. And you may not have all that answers of what you want to do in 40 years. I still don't. Um, well, in 40 years, I hope I'm retired at that point. Um, but <laughs> uh, so uh, you, you have to really step back and think through what does this degree enrich for my life immediately? What does this degree open up for me in pursuit of my career goals immediately or in five years? And how does that help with however far you can see into the future for yourself? Um, so early on for myself, I knew I wanted to be an administrator. I knew that because I, I really love strategic planning and really thinking through where we are right now. There are things that we can do right now, and that's great. But sometimes it makes me feel like I'm a human fire extinguisher, especially with my team where we're all just trying to survive right now through priority of revising and registration, right? Um, and those conversations are fine, but for me, I really thrive on the well, but things can look really different in five years, and what can we do now about that to help propel ourselves into that future? Um, and one of my friends is like, you sound like an administrator already. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I knew I pretty early on I was uh, ultimately eventually want to hopefully pursue something like a, a dean of student success, vice provost of student success, assistant vice provost of student success. Probably not sure I want to go much further than that. I really love student success, in case you can't tell, um, and advising. So, you know, I don't want to get too far removed from that. But I want to engage in it in a way that I can help enrich students' experiences more strategically and think through, well, just because I can't fix this for this one student right now, I might be able to fix this for a 1,000 students later. Um, so I knew pretty early on that if I wanted to get into those roles, a doctorate would certainly help me do so but it also give me the skills I would need in terms of research, data-driven, strategic operation management, um, and then just larger context of higher education. That was my specialization. That was an educational leadership doctorate, but with a specialty in higher ed. Um, so a lot of my coursework was in higher education and then research in higher education. Yeah, and then with your dissertation, so that was focused on, you know, action research methods to learn about student attrition uh, from an online nursing program. Can you talk about why that research was important to you and also what you found out about student attrition? Yeah, I can nerd out about student attrition all day. So, you know, a lot of folks talk about student retention. A lot of folks don't talk about student attrition. And those are two very different sides of the same coin. Um, so what drives a student to stay is not the same reason that a student decides to leave. You know, if a student says, I chose to stay because of this wonderful financial support and this awesome course that helped me transition to the university successfully, another person could be grieving very deep loss in their family um, and going through a lot of personal crisis. So factors that drive retention and keeping a student may not always be perfectly lined up with why a student ultimately leaves. And we need to hear that story too. So we do a lot of things to try and keep them and get them to stay, but sometimes attrition is inevitable or it's needed, or it's the best thing that a student can do in that moment in time for themselves. And so you have to think about how do I bring them back 
or maybe there are severe inequities and barriers in your program or institution, and you hear that more from the students who leave, um, not necessarily from the students who stay. You will hear from the students who stay as well, but you have to hear from both sides. So there's a lot of research in the nursing world uh, about student retention and um, baccalaureate nursing programs, associate's degree programs, and even just in the career overall, because there's a high attrition rate there and burnout rate. Um, and so specifically, I was looking at our RNWSN completion program. So for registered nurses who did their two-year program, um, wanting to finish their bachelor's degree, uh, why would they leave at this point? Because now they're already a nurse, they're invested in their career and their profession, and the, it, there's a, there was a really big push for completion of the BSN degree. So the Institute of Medicine back in 2010 said, hey, we want more BSN prepared nurses and we're gonna get 80% of our nursing workforce to have a BSN or higher by the year 2020. Folks, that did not happen. Um, I think we're still at about 55 to 60% at that point. No, I was doing this research. So we wanted to look at why students started this very this big investment on their part that was driven by external catalysts saying you should complete this, and yet they were leaving. Um, and one of the biggest finds for us was that the students who were leaving our program were very different from what the literature suggested anywhere else. So a lot of literature about, out there about nurses who had been in the field for 20 years who weren't getting value out of the BSN completion program because they had been doing this for 20 years. 90% of our students who were leaving the program were nurses who just started the career within one or two years of getting initial licensure. Um, and so that's where action research really is helpful is for an institution to think around what are the very specific contextual factors at play in their community and in their institution that you can't just capture through standard um, research around let's test pre-post tests or something. Um, action research is all about hearing the narratives of folks um, who engage with your problem of practice, um, who want to improve around that problem of practice, and really using that that um, the contextual expertise they bring to really attend to the nuances of that community driving that change, or in this case, our in the BSN program. So I brought together advisors, program administrators, and faculty to really think through this, and we identified solutions that we thought would work really well. You know, we um, stole a bit out. For, well, I also left the position uh, about a year later after doing this research. So I don't have the data for you right now around how those actions worked, but we put together some really great plans around. We think some more financial support will help in some ways, some help with working with hospitals in the local area to transition students into the BSN completion program and tie that well into their transition into the profession. Um, some other ideas around communicating with students regularly, all things that retention strategies tell you to do as well, but we would not have thought about them had we not talked amongst ourselves and really thought through what this means for our students who are leaving. We're so happy that we could have you and try to get a deeper understanding of your history and your, your uh, contributions. We're so excited to see what will happen this next year with you as president. If any of our listeners are wanting to know more or wanting to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Absolutely. My email address is Kyle, K-Y-L-E, dot Ross, R-O-S-S, at OregonState.edu. If you are interested in getting involved with the association, not sure where to start, 
Or in my case, one of the big things for me was, am I really ready for this? And needing to hear some encouragement for folks to just say, just do it anyway. And we need you. Um, Feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I definitely grapple with those moments of, am I really ready for this? Is this the right position for me? How do I do this? Or where do I even get started? I love to have those conversations with you. And I know there are a lot of folks out there who have those questions about the association. You are always welcome to contact me. And I would love to have a conversation with you about that. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Thank you, Kyle, for helping us understand the unique structure of Nakata and leadership from the various levels of the organization, and also explaining what parallel planning is and how to implement it. And also thank you to Leslie Ross for joining me for these interviews over the last couple of months. Congratulations on your new career path, and I'm sure we'll have you back again. Up next is Dr. Xiao Yuan from Niagara University. All right, our next guest is Dr. Xiao Yuan. Xiao received her PhD in Educational Leadership and Policy in 2021 from Niagara University. Both her MA and BA were in English as a Second Language ESL Education. Her dissertation study was about academic advisors' impacts on international students' sense of belonging to American institutions, and part of the research findings was presented at the Nakata 2021 Annual Conference in Cincinnati. Her research interests include higher education studies, academic advising, international student education, and ESL teaching. She had 10 years of experience teaching English to prospective Chinese international students in international partnership programs in China, and five years of experience teaching ESL to international students in the United States higher education. Xiao, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Matt. Welcome again, and I guess let's get started. So right now you currently work at Niagara University. So how would you describe your institution to anyone that might not be familiar with Niagara? Niagara University is a nice place. It's beautiful, even though it is cold in winter. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the west of New York, and it's very close to the border uh, to Canada, Ontario. Uh, The university has uh, five colleges, College of Education, College of Business, Nursing, Art and Science, and uh, Hospitality. And I was in College of education. So I know more than uh, uh, more about this college. Oh, nice, nice. Absolutely. And you're in New York. So I mean, I'm always looking to at some point go and visit New York. So maybe I'll stop by uh, Niagara University as well. And so let's talk about your path into higher education. Can you give us a little bit of background? Sure. Um, I was in China before I came to the, to the United States for the PhD program. In China, I worked as a teacher for about 10 years. At the very beginning, I was a high, high school teacher um, in international uh, high school. So I taught English um, like IELTS. I don't know whether you know that. So it's a similar um, language testing system, um, which like TOEFL. And it's a British English testing system. So uh, international students who are planning to go abroad, they will need to take this test. 
So I worked, as I said, in international、uh, high school. So I prepared students for their English language. Um. So by accident, <laughs> yeah, it's an accident. <laughs> <laughs> I got a chance to work in a university in China, and、uh, that university has a partnership program with many universities abroad. And、uh, so I worked for them as a language trainer for five years, and、um, I got a chance to study abroad, and、um, it just came. And now I got my PhD. I'm looking for a better path <laughs> or a better opportunity to work as an opportunity rather than a staff, because I have、uh, much interest in. Doing research, and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of that research as well in a little bit. Now, at Nyer University, what is your your current position? What does that all entail? At this moment, I'm teaching an ESL to international students, which is kind of similar to what I did in China. So I was experienced in doing that. And、um, the students I'm teaching are from different countries. Even though we don't have a big population, still we have this ESL program for the students who are not ready.、Um, I mean, for the language or culture, they're not ready for the academic、uh, major. So they will start in this ESL program for a semester or two. So I teach them different courses such as、um, reading. Writing, vocabulary, advanced conversation, and so on. Yeah, and also one of those、uh, is like,、uh, is it like academic success strategies as well? Yes, I taught academic strategy、um, for one semester, and、um, covered a lot of、um, a lot of、uh, aspects, including one one. Aspect was academic advising. Many international students actually didn't know academic advising system of the United States higher education at all. They didn't know that. Oh, really? I could go to to advisor. What what are they doing? Like, what can I get from them? So, particularly for the ESL students, they have no clue at all. It's almost that、like、they they they might feel they have they're just have to figure it out on their own and didn't realize、right. that they they have this extra help that's available to them. Exactly. So I um I spent about three hours on that on, on teaching that like showing them what is academic advising, what it is like, what our advisors are doing, and the other academic support services on campus, and、yeah. students find it very useful. Good, good. Why?、Well, I hope it's something that you can continue to teach or expand on because, yeah, that's as you know, it's like super important to to, to have that. And then some of the other things that it, with your teacher, you're talking about like the academic writing and the reading and vocabulary. And so, because you were also like providing a tutor and helping students to expand on、um, information that may not have been presented in their class. And I think you also have、uh, even assisted with like APA citations and. And how to、uh, paraphrase and summarize?、Um, how has that gone? Yes, that's very important because、um, uh, I had uh, the experience 
like personally, when I was an international student for the first semester, the professor asked me to do write APA, and I didn't know what is APA. And I studied, look into it, and then I found, oh, that is APA. Like for 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 students, like undergraduates or even some graduates, they when they come from another country, they may not. Uh, they were not asked to write with AP in APA style and so. So some people will say, oh, international students have big problem uh, with plagiarism. One thing I would say is not, I can say not all international students, they are, they doing it um, intent, like on purpose. Probably they just didn't know how to cite. Uh, I had um, a friend who was in the PhD program, uh, but now she has graduated. She had experienced this trouble, I would say. Like one professor say, oh, you had problem with the plagiarism and uh, she was asked to go to a hearing. It was awful and she was so scared about it. And then later on, she figured, oh, that was what the professor was talking about. So she was totally didn't know what was APA was about. And by accident, she was kind of sent into a hearing. But fortunately, she figured it out with, with some extra help. And uh, so that's just a perfect example of, of that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking like, yeah, if I was in that situation, I would, yeah, I, what would I do? Who do I go to? Like, I'm thinking I'm doing everything correct. And then I'm being told that it's wrong. Yes. So yeah, it can be very, ner very nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. And then I guess with that, do you feel like, um, like, as academic advisors or staff at these at institutions, um, do you feel there's any misconceptions that we might have about international students, generally speaking? Uh, just one thing I may I would say is about this plagiarism problem. Mm -hmm. um, actually, on the CADA conference this year, um, another student, uh, another not a student, because I was a teacher. I always consider the people who are very young <laughs> their student. No, another um, advisor who attended another session, and in that session, that was a Chinese lady. The 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 girl mentioned to me after the session they say she was in that room and uh, one of the attendee mentioned about uh an international students uh plagiarism and she and that person particularly mentioned the chinese international students and she was very offended so i would say one misconception about about international students is plagiarism 
they did probably they didn't do it on purpose. They just、mm-hmm. didn't know it. So it's very important for institutions to provide some some、uh, writing style tutoring、um, for international students, not just like faculty or stuff. Let's say international students have already understand everything.、Mm-hmm. No, they can't. They don't. So transitional support should be more in details. Oh yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. And yeah, hopefully that anyone listening can hopefully take that and maybe do something at their institution if they don't have anything already in place. Now you were mentioning、uh, the Nakata conference. Now most recently you attended the Nakata conference in Cincinnati in、yeah. uh, a couple months ago in October.、Um, how was that experience for you? It was a wonderful experience.、Um, to be honest, at the very beginning, when I was accepted for the scholarly paper, I hesitated. I don't know whether I should go. One thing is, COVID is was bad, and I I was not sure if I could go in person and stuff. You know, so another reason is I was not so positive about my dissertation at the very beginning, and I asked. My my、uh, my chair, Dr. John Souter, <clears throat> and he's strongly supported me. Hey, go! Yeah, wonderful. I'm sure you will. You will. You will. You find it very beneficial. He was so positive. I say, okay, I'll go. <laughs> yeah, and、uh, it ended up、um, very good. And I think if I didn't go, I would、uh, regret. Yeah, and sometimes yeah, it's like you you get accepted for a presentation, and yeah, there's that hesitation for sure. Like, yeah, do I go? Do I not go? I'm glad you went. I'm sorry I wasn't able to attend your session. I found out about it afterwards, and I saw on social media and people commenting about how great it was and how much useful information they got from it. And I think that could be great for some of our listeners because、um, you did a scholarly paper session. And that title was、um, "Advisors Cross Cultural Empathy: The Key to International Students' Sense of Belonging." Can you talk more about that scholarly paper? Sure.、Um, this scholarly paper was part of my、um, PhD dissertation, and、um, yeah, it took me five years to complete. <laughs> The、um, research was a quantitative research, so I did a survey to international students across the United States. Um, in this serv-、uh, in this research, I developed a, a structure equation model. So, same say it's、uh, in short. So, it's the same model, and、uh, I I investigated、um, international students'、um, sense of belonging, and then international students'.、Um, uh, uh, what was that? <laughs> international students'、uh, advisors cross cultural. Empathy activities with international students.、Um, whether these activities with advisors influenced international students' sense of belonging. The reason why I did it, did this, was that international students like me or many other international students, they are isolated. They are not not、um, engaging in a lot of、um, uh, campus activities. For example. Some international students I know, they go to they go to class, and、uh, after they finish the class, they go back to the room. They kind of hardly ever engage in any kind 
Kimber's activities, and I want to see why. So that was that was just I was passionate about advising international students and support them, you know. So um, the research result um, kind of surprised me. It's, it showed that um, academic advisors' cultural empathy activities with international students positively mediate the, the, the effect of advising satisfaction to send students' sense of belonging. However, academic advisors, um, uh, the rapport between advisor and advisee didn't show positive influence. Um, I would say cultural empathy, um, it's a big issue and um, it just give advisors or give researchers another, another aspect um, to see how advising uh, will influence students, particularly in the sense of belonging. Now, is there anything from the study like that could help advisors to help students with with their sense of belonging? Any like tips that that come, came out of that? Um, the the instrument I used for um, cultural empathy uh, activities was from another scholar, and these instruments include about seven questions about uh, for advisor and advisee activities. So the questions uh, was like giving some examples, like uh, whether advisors asked the, the students about the family, about their home, about their home country, about their advising philosophy, and so on. So even though these questions sounds very simple, did your advisor ask you this? Did your advisor ask you this? However, the truth is these questions show students kind of uh, caring. The advisor is caring about the students. So they, they, so the results, they, re-explored, oh, okay, yes, this improves students' sense of belonging. Probably advisors would like to uh, think about the activities with international students. When, uh, when advising international students, did they really ask about their home, ask about the family, ask about their home country, particularly if there is anything uh, bad happened in the home country. For example, the student mentioned uh, uh, one Chinese student who went to, not student, one Chinese advisor who attended my conference session. Um, She said, last year when um, China was having the problem, like in one province, uh, they had a flood and they were suffering a lot. And the people who asked about her about that issue left her a deep impression. Says, oh, I was I was cared. People worried or cared about, about me. So you see, just a little, a little bit, and it could show that empathy to the international students. 
and it's like you know we we sometimes have have our assumptions and might assume like no we don't want to ask a question about their personal life or whatnot um but we can see that yeah something so simple as just asking those questions can have such a positive impact and one of my colleagues had said you know one of the best questions that you could ever ask any student is, hey, tell me about how life is going in your world right now. Yeah. And yeah. that, that could awesome. just open up. Yeah. Open up so much um, conversation uh, and a student can feel that they, they feel comfortable um, answering those questions. So yeah, definitely great advice with that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And then with your, um, with the research that you did, like, I guess how how do you decide like what's the best way to to do the study? Like so, like how did you know that this was the best way to study the impacts of advisors cross cultural empathy? Uh, this is a very hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how what is the best way of doing a study, but I would say um, for research we could do either quantitative or qu qualitative or mixed method. I chose to use quantitative, use data, use a survey because I feel um, it's easier just design the survey and get people participate into it, and uh, and then I have I have my main piece, and then I could analyze the data. So that's the way why I choose this. But I mean, other ways qualitative. Um, as um, the other two scholars who uh, who did the uh, who was the presenter in scholarly paper on Nakata twenty twenty one, they are they are research were both qualitative, so they did a lot of interviews and stuff. So I would say I cannot answer I, because I don't know which is the best way, and uh, both ways have its um, pros and cons. So from in the in uh, regarding to the to the methods itself, mm -hmm. it's just um, what way the uh, researcher feel more comfortable with. So yeah. I was more comfortable with uh, with data, with numbers. And mm -hmm. uh, I just feel like uh, to do interviews will be too much. So yeah. I really, I really, uh, I really admire those people who are doing qualitative. I think in the future, I'm going to do some. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. And yeah. I mean, you've written, you've written quite a few articles, you know, the one that you presented, you know, you recently published one on a comparison of classroom management. Uh, you've even done one, a few on geographic information systems. So let me ask you this based off your experience, because there, there's probably people that are listening that are interested in doing some sort of scholarly research, but maybe they're really scared. to like, I don't know how to get started. I don't know if I, am I the one to even do this. Do you have any advice for those that, that are interested, but are just unsure of where to start? Um, I say passion driven is the best way. Like what you're passionate about. That's the, biggest issue because doing research sometimes it's very boring and it's very very time consuming you may be you may have some ideas and then you start looking into it and it's you find oh the more you need to 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 to, to research so 
the very most important thing is what what is your interest what is why you want to do it so for me i was interested in doing um, research about international students and i find academic advising is something new to international students so that passion like helped me to continue <gasps> even though my passion was strong still it took me five years it's hard and uh, particularly when you do the literature review and um, there's there's so much that has been done there and uh, the more you read it, the more you find oh this has been done oh this has been done oh this has been done too but the thing is, of course, there are a lot ha that has not been done. So you're driven uh, on the condition that you're driven by a passion and then you will be patient. So second, I would say that will be the second point. Be patient. Like it always takes time to do research. So like you find something... I remember when I was um, I was taking the course in the PhD program. They were saying, by the time you find most of the uh, the the articles you are reading are similar, and you are familiar with those people who are doing this, uh, doing the research in this field, that's the time when you could start writing, not reading. So the first thing passion the second thing patience the third thing read 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 and then stop and write <laughs> got to write like yeah you know so much by reading and doing the job now it's the time you put down the things mm -hmm. and people say the best of work is the work done right mm -hmm. so to write it out that's that will I think that will that is the most difficult part. Mm -hmm. Having yeah. an idea is important, but write down the idea and make it published. It's 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 another thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's various parts, but I definitely yeah. I mean, that's I think really fantastic advice about yeah, you know, do something that you're passionate about, but having that patience because it does take time and especially with doing a lot of that research and the reading and then getting to the, to the part of writing it. Because um, I think, you know, me included, it, it's one where I just want to get it done, but mm -hmm. it's it's a whole process. And I've had to learn to try to enjoy the process and that journey through everything and not just always look at, okay, I need to get this done, get to the goal. Because this research and the writing like it's 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 a time commitment yeah another suggestion i want to give to advisors um is that um academic advising it's uh, it's a good field for research and uh, it needs more researchers and investigators so advisors you are as a front line and you know everything about about advising what you need to become a researcher is just have more theory and uh, have the passion of doing it. So it would be easier for advisors to become researchers in advising than to have a researcher from another background. 
Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And and yeah, I hope a lot of listeners uh, will, you know, take that to heart and, you know, will maybe implement that. But yeah, fantastic advice. Thank you again for that. It's wonderful. Yeah. And as academic advising may be a profession in the future, if it is, are we ready? Are advisors ready for that? And I hope I hope we all are. You know, yeah. I, I definitely I you know I see us as a profession, and I know that's always that's been like the ongoing conversation. But I think the advice you give really will help push us forward where we need to go. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's just it's just my understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And but I think a lot of people would agree with you though, mm-hmm. and. I want to talk about uh, with the time we have remaining, like one of the uh, presentations you did also like a few years ago in 2018, you presented at the uh, Region 10 driving conference and you, you did a presentation on a case study of, of undecided Chinese international students. And so if I could ask you about that, uh, can you talk about that presentation and what did you find was the experience of students as they kind of did their academic exploration? Actually, that was one thing. Um, that was one of um, my uh, my interest for undecided in, undecided students uh, on the conference. Uh, I mean, kind of conference. They uh, some people were saying that international students are not allowed decided. I was going to David, um, but I I got no chance to ask him yet. I'm not sure if international students are allowed to be undecided or not. But according to the people I interviewed for my for my study, like they, I interviewed some students from from a, a public university in Western New York, and also some students from a private uh, university. According to their their experience, it is allowed to um, for international students of, um, to be undecided. And um, this is something new for international students from China. In China, well, we never have the chance to be undecided. When we go to college, we decide our major become before we go in, because in different um, different major, even the the, uh, um, the admission level, like we we have uh, um, national national university interest examination. So for that examination, students will score differently. For some major, even in the same university, say the university I was working um, was uh, Hunan University, which is a top top 50 university in China. And the engineering was one of the best. Students who want to go to this major will have to score much higher than those students who go to, say, say chemistry i'm not sure but just an example so when students they are enrolled in the university they're accepted by the university they are not allowed to change the major so no matter to say like let them be undecided that's impossible so when i i had got to know this undecided thing for American universities and I found some international students they are being undecided I was curious 
So that was the reason why I had that study. And um, except that presentation, I didn't submit my paper to anywhere yet because it is it was a quantitative. It was an interview. <laughs> it's so time consuming. So by yeah. now, I haven't finished coding and stuff yet. Yeah, this has been a fantastic interview. I think I've learned a lot, especially like different ways of research and um, how involved it, it can be. Um, but especially too, like your advice on you know passion and patience. You know, reading and writing. Like I think that's going to stick with me for a while, and hopefully with <laughs> listeners as as well. Um, but we have run out of time. But if anyone has any questions from listening to this interview and they want to uh, get in touch with you, they have more questions. What's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, uh, they could reach out to me by email and um, or social media. I use Twitter and I also use Facebook. Or um, I could provide my email address if uh, you could post it online. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can put it in the show notes. And then if you wanted to say what your email address is, and then we can just have it included in here as well. Oh, okay. My email is Yuan, Y-U-A-N, my last name, Yuan at Nagra.edu. Thank you very much. Thank you, Xiao. Very enlightening to hear about your work teaching and advising international students, as well as your perspective with scholarly research and getting more involved. Now let's hear from Jamie Engel from DePaul University. So up next is Jamie Engel. Jamie received her BA in International Studies with a self-designed concentration in world religions from Illinois College. She credits that liberal arts education as a catalyst for her dedication to higher education and subsequent career in academic advising. Jamie has been advising for over seven years, joining the field just after completion of her MS in academic advising from Kansas State University. Since then, Jamie has advised at McMurray College and then at the University of Illinois at Springfield before joining DePaul University in 2019, where she currently serves as Assistant Director for Academic Advising for Biological Sciences and also advises neuroscience undergraduates. She remained consistently involved with NACADA ever since attending her first NACADA annual conference in Minneapolis in 2014, where she walked into her first small colleges and universities advising community meeting and found her then NACADA home. From there, Jamie received Region 5's Crossing Borders grant four years in a row. And by beginning her involvement in states outside her home state of Illinois, Jamie's NACADA roots run throughout Region 5 and beyond. She has presented on various topics at each conference level, typically related to wellness, collaboration, and getting involved in the field. Jamie's Nakata leadership began with her term as chair of the Small Colleges and Universities Advising Community, and then as president of the Illinois Academic Advising Association, before progressing into the role of Nakata Great Lakes Region 5 chair. Jamie was also proud to serve as the first ever service project chair on the 2021 Nakata Annual Conference Planning Committee in Cincinnati, collecting over $1,500 in donations for the Cincinnati Food Bank. Considering herself a jack-of-all advising trades, Jamie doesn't feel particularly drawn to one area or approach, but rather consumes and connects with the broad spectrum of Nakata publications, events, and members. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're excited to have you on too. I mean, this has been great. I, you know, I've known you for a little while now, so this is exciting to have you on and, and get to know you a little bit better. So, you know, there's a lot in your bio of things that, that you've done, you know, and, and how far you've come from when you originally started in higher ed, but maybe you can go more a little bit in depth uh, with this first question and kind of like what's been your path into higher ed, into advising? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, from one odd chair to another <laughs> odd region chair. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I've always loved education, I think, because it was kind of easy for me. <laughs> and so, you know, I enjoy, <laughs> whereas a lot of people like things that are challenges, I like to do things that I'm good at. So um, that was, uh, when I got to college, um, I just, I realized I really, I really learned or, or loved some of my classes and um, with particular professors and, and really started thinking, I don't, I don't want to leave these classes. I want to do this forever, you know? Okay, maybe I should be a professor in these things, right? And um, I'm at a very small liberal arts school, Illinois College, uh, only about a thousand students, one of the first colleges in Illinois. And um, I was very close with my faculty advisors. I had, a, I had a few that I would go to. And there was this one pair, um, the doctors Spalding, as I would call them, there was a married couple. One taught world religions and the other one taught um, international studies classes. And that was, as you know, <laughs> what ended up being my major, international studies. And I designed a concentration in world religions. And I let them know that I was really interested in becoming a professor. And I've never known whether they were just really looking out for me or whether they <laughs> didn't think I had what it took, but they both separately discouraged me from becoming a professor. Um, <laughs> yeah, they both, they both kind of said, you know, you know, passion's great, but you'll never really um, recoup all that you put into it, in their opinion. Um, so again, I've always like, <laughs> been like, I'm not exactly sure how to take that. But that's when they kind of suggested, um, you know, talking more to, to a different advisor who knew a little more about academic advising. And at this small school, we did not have professional academic advisors. I didn't know that was a thing. I only knew about, you know, professors in my major. Um, and I was a first generation college student. So everything I did was like the first in, in my family and just charting new territories. So I did talk to my um, primary faculty advisor, Dr. Winston Wells, um, and he let me know about Nakata. And I went ahead and looked into it and was like, oh my gosh, this sounds awesome. Oh, wow. And they have a master's degree that I can do online. And that was at the time extremely attractive to me because um, I was um, with, I, with my then now ex-husband, <laughs> um, but we were you know, planning to get married and stuff once we graduated college. And I just didn't know where his career was going to take us. And I was open to anything. So I was like, online masters, that sounds cool. And mind you, when, when I went to college, again, being first gen, I didn't even know graduate school was a thing. I, I don't know that I had ever heard of it. I knew people went to medical school, law school, did not know that people went to grad school, let alone that all my classmates, day one freshman year, were already thinking about what they wanted to do for grad school. And that's how it feels, you know, like you're the only one who, who was. I'm sure there was a few others that were as underinformed as I was. But um, yeah, once I, I, I did not even consider grad school until like my last semester of college. And then I started the K-State um, master's program the following fall online. And I absolutely loved it and thrived in that program and, and did, did just, you know, as well or better than I did in all the other undergraduate studies that I was passionate about. Um, and uh, so then I ended up 
in admissions. That's where I finally got my foot in the door at a little school called McMurray College. It was fun fact, it was the other liberal arts school in the town that I went to college. Town of 20,000 people and they had two private liberal arts schools, which how do you have room for that? Well, they don't. McMurray closed this past during COVID. Um, but to be fair, they were open since like 1846, you know, and Illinois College since 1829. So somehow there was room for both of them for a long time, but you know, the world has changed. Um, so I got my foot in the door at Mac and uh, started an admission on April 23rd, 2014. I'm really good with dates. Um, <laughs> so I always remember these things. Um, April 23rd, 2014. Um, I remember the very first week that I was starting, the other admissions counselors were going to a conference, um, IACUC, the, or IACAC, um, Illinois Admissions Counseling something or another. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, conference, yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, that's what professional people do. That sounds really exciting, you know? And so I went and embraced that and enjoyed, just enjoyed it as much as I possibly could. And um, like two weeks later, I finished my master's um, and the provost got wind of this. And within a month or two, all of a sudden, I think it was a retention effort, you know, to kind of tell the board, like, look, we're really going to do something about um, retention and persistence. He just kind of whipped up this director of academic advising position. I've been in higher ed two and a half, three months total. And uh, but he finds out one of his, you know, staff has a master, the K-State master's in advising. Okay, this is the person. And so I'm 24 years old and he makes me director of academic advising when I've never advised before. And I'll just tell you right now, this is a theme throughout my life that I walk before I crawl. I literally walked on Christmas Eve when I was seven months old and had never crawled. And I've just done that in every way you can think since then, for better or worse. Um, it, it speaks more to my impatience than anything. <laughs> but anyway, so he got me in there and um, I was fresh off of my K-State master's. So I was like, what does a good advising program need that this one doesn't have? And again, this is a, a small private liberal arts school that's been around since 1846, and they've had a faculty advising model only since then. Um, I'm sure it was examined at some point along the way, but it wasn't structured or examined in the way that we think of an advising program to be. So I was like, okay, I spent the rest of what I had that summer um, coming up with a vision and mission that I thought outlined or aligned with the university's vision and mission, student learning outcomes process delivery outcomes, faculty advising outcomes. I came up with um, pamphlets for faculty, for students, and for parents on what to expect from advising, like little advising syllabi. It was, it was a beautiful thing. My K-State professors would have been really proud. Uh, was it received the way I thought it would be? Absolutely not. <laughs> because they, what they did was put me on stage at uh, you know opening convocation. Um, and, uh, you know, this is our new advising director, and she's going to tell you how to do this thing that nobody's really ever told you how to do before. That's an extra part of your job that some of you already don't want to do, you know, <laughs> but she's going to really structure and examine it because she knows what she's talking about. Um, I mean, I had this beautiful PowerPoint outlining all these things I had come up with, and, and the provost all but grabbed the big cane and pulled me off stage, like, we, like wanted to shut me up as quickly as he could because we were losing the audience, which was faculty advisors. <laughs> um, so gave me feedback on that, you know, okay, I understand these things are tenants of an advising program, but that's not how to approach it, you know. So I got an opportunity shortly thereafter, for some reason, and I can't remember what the event was, 
to uh, try again. And I came to it more of a, how can I support you and help you with the great things you're already doing? And we formed a wonderful collaboration from there. <laughs> um, and, and so that was my, my first step into advising, had never advised. And then I was director and I didn't supervise anyone, but I did technically oversee faculty advising for the university. And, um, and then I structured any like advising orientation type of thing and came up with entrance into major workshops and, and all these different things that I was very proud of. Um, and, and that's, that's how I got into advising. Um, of course, I could continue to talk. But I'm sure you have some other great questions. <laughs> I'm just thinking like in, in this type of position, it, it's almost like it was sink or swim in almost everything that, that, that you were doing. And I know people listening are probably like they, they've been in sink or swim moments, but this was like from the very beginning, All right? Here's this position. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to have you be the director. Okay. I have my master's, but not necessarily any like hands-on experience with it. All right, let's, let's see how it goes. And, you know, you, you were talking about dates and just always remembering dates that that's like, that's Ben Hopper right there. Um, uh, okay. when, when I visited uh, Manhattan, he, the joke was that, that he knew all the dates and he did. He'd be like, on February 1st of this year, this happened. And I, I went here and I had this for dinner. And so like, <laughs> when you're mentioning that, I'm like, yeah, I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> no wonder he hates pushing back deadlines, right? That's just another, he's it got it all up sense. It. <laughs> it makes sense. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> but through your story of, of how you got here, you know, I think it kind of relates to your in your bio or you you discussed talking about you credit liberal arts education as that catalyst, you know, for your dedication to, to where you're at and being an academic advising. And now you're at DePaul university. How would you describe that institution? Yeah. I mean, DePaul is so much different. I mean, it, it, just on a, you know, on a macro, on a much bigger scale, um, there is, you know, it's, it's prestigious, it's private, you know, um, there's, there's a, a very worldly feel to it, very global, globally engaged feel. And when I went to uh, my undergrad, that was apparent immediately, you know, with how much like study abroad and different things were pushed and how much, um, you know, making a difference in the world was pushed. And that way, they're actually very similar. DePaul, um, something we really pride ourselves on and speak to constantly is our Vincentian mission. And, um, and, and I always kind of screwed up, but, but essentially our saying is, um, what must be done, you know, you do what must be done to help others and to, you know, whatever it is. So it's a very accepting, um, uplifting sort of spirit. And, and I definitely felt that from Illinois College as well. But, you know, on a significantly smaller scale, we had no graduate programs or, you know, anything like that. Um, you know, we probably, I could probably count all the majors we had, you know, on a couple of hands, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, DePaul is, um, it definitely surprised me in a lot of ways when I got here because it's, it's the largest university that I've worked at too. So I started at that McMurray College that was 500 students. And um, then I went to University of Illinois Springfield. And, um, and so I went the opposite direction, state school, which was very interesting. And I actually, I actually love UIS despite the, the politics and <laughs> government association. Um, it, but that was, you know, more like 5,000 students. And then DePaul, you know, has 20 something thousand, I think. Um, and, and so, but what's interesting is my caseload has always stayed about the same. I've been very, very lucky. I know a lot of advisors can't say that. It also makes me hesitant to venture out and try any other type of, you know, university, um, like community college advising. I've always had an interest in like, you know, the fast paced nature of it. Would I like that better? But 
inevitably, you know, you have an, a huge caseload that you might not get to connect with as much. And do I want that? But yeah, I, I know this isn't exactly what you asked, but what's interesting is that I have always had right around that recommended narcotic caseload of, I believe about 350. Um, and, and so I, it just allows me to pursue everything that I want to pursue, you know, to sort of enhance my advising practice, which, you know, I'll tell anyone helps my students ultimately as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I bet there's people listening right now going, 350 caseload is DePaul hiring? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know not all of my colleagues can say the same, but what's interesting is we actually did just do a, a very small restructuring in the College of Science and Health, mm-hmm. where myself and the other couple of department advisors, which are the minority, um, we were reporting just straight to the faculty department chairs, which we loved. I'm very used to that, used to working close with faculty, as I've you know, made clear. Um, but by reporting to the advising office, you know, we're going to make things a little more consistent. And I was honestly worried um, that that meant Jamie's caseload needs to go up. Mm-hmm. What I was told, fortunately, is no, more advisors kind of should be able to model what they do after how you're doing it, mm-hmm. because clearly this is being done right. So I was so glad to hear that they've got the right idea. You know, it's not... Um, a customer service situation where they're trying to just like, you know, pack us on, you know, as many advisors as we can and crank them out. They want to make sure it's quality advising that's done well, even if um, students have to wait a little longer for an appointment. And every time I hear that, it's like a hug. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. Because I, I do the best I can with the time I have and any more would jeopardize, you know, the advice that I'm giving. <laughs> yeah, it, it warms the heart because it's not as if, or we're going to check this box and say, yep, the student had some sort of contact, move on to the next one. And let's see exactly. how many, how many students we can say that, that we technically saw. It's mm-hmm. actually something that we can actually spend time with the student make sure all their needs are met, make sure they understand everything. So is that something that that model has changed already or it's in the process of being done? They kind of, it's kind of in the process. It, it mostly changed over the summer, but there's just some different behind the scenes things. Like, like I was submitting my reimbursements for Nakata and, I was still under the old account and different things like that. <laughs> just simple technical things, you know. It's like, okay, we got, oh, okay, this still isn't updated. But um, in terms of our practice, that has um, immediately changed. So I'm now, um, I was much more siloed, which it is my style. Just, I do things myself. I'm a bad delegator. Um, <laughs> but, you know, being in an, it, kind of part of an advising office for the first time, even though I'm not physically in the office with the other advisors, it's amazing like the support and the camaraderie I mean this is going to sound you know like obvious to people that I've dealt with this but understand I have never worked with a team of other advisors in this mm-hmm. capacity I've always been on my own <laughs> around faculty so um yeah and I wanted to speak to I wanted to reference our our buddy Ryan um <laughs> uh I, I I attended um his Star Wars presentation in Atlanta years ago he knows because I called him Star Wars for years after that and have always referenced when he um, said to spring the trap, um, you know, referencing that great scene in Star Wars, you know, about um, what was it, Obi-Wan senses a trap, and they're like, well, what should we do? Spring the trap. And I have always applied that to my advising philosophy, and therefore been grateful that I have the time to spend with my students, because their meetings with me aren't required, but they schedule them for a matter that is important to them. But I might bring up some other things while we're meeting, you know, such as, okay, with what you have left, where are you thinking you're going to graduate? Or why did you take this? Just different. I'm springing the trap. I'm bringing up issues, you know, ahead of time 
to make sure that we're not, you know, it's not an unsolvable thing down the road that's going to delay their graduation. So credit to Ryan always on, on yeah. that terminology. <laughs> Shout out to Ryan. Ryan has a lot of fans and, and is so knowledgeable. Sometimes <laughs> I'll talk to him and I feel like, oh my God, he's way up here. Because <laughs> he'll talk about things and I'm like, let me make a note and look that up later. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a second. Okay. References. Can you cite that for me? Because now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is great. <laughs> now, you know, Ryan from Nakata and let's, maybe take you back to the Nakata Minneapolis conference. What was it about that conference or what happened there that made you know that Nakata was home for you? Shout out to Amy Santos, I believe was the chair of that conference. Um, uh, Tashara Goody Walker from UAB, my first Nakata friend ever. We met in uh, the hotel bar of the Hilton Minneapolis. Anybody that attended will remember that the day of check-in something happened and the Hilton system crashed and it showed all their rooms as dirty or something. And so there were hundreds of advisors just stacked up in the lobby while they had to manually check every room. And thank God for the Hilton that they've got a, a lovely bar right in the lobby area so you can stay informed while enjoying yourself. Um, shout outs to those people. But then yes, to, to get back to really the original point here, um, what really made me feel at home was when I walked into the Nakata Small Colleges and Universities advising community meeting. So shout out to Dana Hebriard. Hebriard, I always, she's a good friend of mine, but that's one of those names as we were talking before that you could even ask and then forget what, what's the correct pronunciation. Um, she's a, in a Michigan, Wyona Porath, the great Wyona Porath, used to be from Ohio, now a region two person. And then um, my old buddy, Bobby Detweiler. Those were three of the um, people I got to know in small colleges immediately, um, all from region five, coincidentally like myself, um, that just, you know, with open arms. And, uh, and that was the thing about small colleges and universities. And even though I'm not at one anymore, if you're at a small school, that is your Nakata home. I, pro I guarantee you, if you haven't accessed them, you need to do it. Um, because I, oh my gosh, I love that first Nakata conference so much, but that was four months into advising and <laughs> I knew nobody, but I like to make friends. Um, but I was going to session after session, like, man, these sound awesome, but I don't have anybody else on my team. I don't have any of these resources. I don't have this caseload. Just thing after thing wasn't applicable to me, even though it was very interesting, inspiring to hear about some things that I was able to carry on late, later on, you know, once I got to a big university. But then I walked into small colleges and those were some of the only people I had met thus far that weren't there as part of a team. Most of them were there by themselves, the only person from their school. So a lot of them, just like me, were the only advisor at their school. I think um, you it, you interviewed Josh, what's his name? Josh Linrode? Yeah, Linrode. Yeah, from Lake, Lake Erie College. He's, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the tall guy, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes, yes. It was my pleasure meeting Josh for the first time at small colleges at Nakata this year. And, um, and I believe he had said he was the only advisor on his campus and first one to be involved in Nakata and all that. That's, that's the small college anthem right there. But I was like, man, you are in the right place. And then I just start seeing his name pop up everywhere. So I'm so glad that he, he instantly found his home. But he, he's the type of person that seems like he would have found his home anywhere in Nakata, right? <laughs> but just willing to go for it and talk and, you know, and, and be approachable in that way. But um, I you know, that's, that's just a great example of you walk in and that it's, oh my gosh, these people are actually experiencing the many hats that, you know, all advisors have to wear, but at a small school, it is just a whole different ball game when 
so many things are on you. And so you go to these conferences, like, damn, these are great ideas. But really that small college session, the idea sharing there about how people manage their caseloads or onboard if they ever have, are able to hire new advisors, everything you can think of. It, it's just, it, it's very, extremely valuable. Um, those were, those were some very yeah, important people for me to meet, you know, Bobby, Dana, and, um, and Wyona in that first, um, that first conference. But um, I did also want to give a quick shout out to um, my buddy, Kevin, Kevin Thomas from um, SIUE. Um, he, I, I, I was walking through that Minneapolis, or is it Thompson? See, I'm terrible. Um, I was walking through that. No, it's, it's Thomas. You had it right the first oh, time. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Yeah. Don't second guess yourself. Yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah. We know Kevin too. And I remember walking through this conference center in Minneapolis and I saw a jacket that said SIUE and I'm from the St. Louis area. And I just like screamed SIUE and ran after it. <laughs> Familiarity. <laughs> and so that's yet another one of my very first Nakata friends just on a total chance meeting. But, um, you know, so it depends on who you are, if you're going to, if you're going to get out there and find your home in general, but, um, you know, if nothing else, you're a small school person, small colleges and universities is a place. <laughs> Yeah, there's something for everyone in Nakata. And it, it's always nice hearing people's stories of what it was about Nakata that, that made it special for them. And most times I hear it's always there's a specific person or people that they met. And then it's the some advising community or some event at that conference. But it usually starts with, with a person that, that they just randomly started talking to. And then it turned into a great friendship. And then more opportunities for within the organization or ideas to bring back to their institution. So it, it's always fascinating hearing those. So I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, and Wyona Porath is the one who she became small colleges chair after our friend Dana. Wyona nominated me to be that. And then Wyona is the one who nominated me last year to be region five chair before I thought I was ready or even eligible. Like, I, I don't know if you had ever heard in your process of running, but I had always been told that there was like, you had to do certain things before you became chair. And maybe that was just some unwritten, you know, like this is how it's always been. You're a liaison or a region conference chair or something beforehand. But going back to me walking before I crawl, I was on a region five conference committee, but I had not served on the steering committee at all. And Wyona nominated me and I was like, I mean, you know, I want to do that, but I'm not ready yet. Or I, I don't think I'm eligible yet. And she was like, oh, really? Well, I just submitted it. So <laughs> kind of like deal with it. <laughs> That's that's so similar to, to mine. So Sherry Souza, who was the previous Region 9 chair, she just inquired with me and said, do you have any idea if you want to run for Region chair? And my immediate answer was no. <laughs> I I didn't think I was some, I was ready for it, that I wanted to do it. All these like leadership type positions, I've always said, no, I don't want to do it. And then someone just either will nudge me. In this case, Sherry was like, well, you have time to think about it. The deadlines won't be for like a month or two. Then like, next week, she messaged me and says, oh, just kidding. The deadline, I guess, is coming up tomorrow or the you know, end of the week. So I already put your name in there. And I'm like, oh, my God, what just happened? And then, you know, I, I, I you know, submit my video and all that. And then I'm thinking, please, I hope I don't get this. Hope I don't get this. And then I got it. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I, it, it happened. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I did a video, um, didn't probably really need to ultimately, but, uh, <laughs> you know, go big or go home, just make mm -hmm. sure it gets through. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how has it been going for you as, as a region five chair? 
Oh man. Well, I got a little bonus chair action because I got to, you know, lead the region five meeting at annual this year in place of our outgoing chair, Patricia McMillan, because she's um, in Canada. So um, sadly for her, she is the chair without a conference as we affectionately call her as she calls herself. Um, so I hope that we can, we can treat her to a great conference someday. Um, so that was walk before I crawled, Matt. Okay. So before I was chair, I had to lead the region by meeting. <laughs> I got to tell you though, it was one of the highlights of my life. I had so much fun. I mean, you know, I like to, I do, I like to be in front of a group of people. I like to be in the spotlight, but especially when I'm able to like hand out $50 in Nakata cash, people just love you when you're doing that. And that feels good. <laughs> Oh yeah, we had we had the the, the region uh, or the Nakata cash. We had Amazon gift cards, and I'm like, here you go, you won, you won. And luckily, we like yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and yeah, I I delete the the region nine one too. Um, Sherry was it was in Hawaii and right. wasn't able to to make it out there. So luckily, we did a like a, a video uh, beforehand where we can have it for the virtual. Um, attendees so to me that was my test run to see how i would do nice. <laughs> and then able to do okay. it live any, oh, that's... yeah any any challenges or successes thus far you know i mean i know we've both only been in it for a little bit but anything that you want to highlight right now you know um right now of course we're both going through um you know the the nominations and whatnot for elections and then proposal submissions and just racking our brains for how to um encourage people to get those. Um, you know, in region five, our big challenge has been so far for me has been that we um, were delayed in getting our dates confirmed. And so I am happy to have this platform to tell as many people as I can that we are May 2nd through 4th in Indianapolis, reunite with region five. That's the theme. So it's, <laughs> it's going to feel so good. Um, so, so that upfront challenge is, you know, having ripple effects and things are delayed, but, but we know, um, in Nakata that, you know, a lot of us will just like with our students wait till the deadline, you know, to submit things. That's, um, I, I had an academic success coach tell one of my students not long ago, not to write deadlines in your planner, because that lets you, that tells you that's the day that I have to do that. <laughs> so I was like, that is good, but how do I manage when the deadlines are? Because otherwise I'll just forget. <laughs> um, no, so, so right now we are definitely, you know, trying to get proposal submissions and things up because those are a bit low, a bit lower than we'd like to see. Um, but I am very fortunate, you know, that Region 5 is so robust that I do have a full steering committee. Um, I've got at least one nomination for every position that's coming up. So although not everyone is going to have, you know, an opposition or any challenge, at least we've got people running for those. And so I'm so glad that um, we do still have folks in the region invested and interested and feeling like they have time. And if that's something I can speak to real quick, as I tell, I tell other advisors on my campus this because a lot of them haven't been involved in the kata as much. Uh, and I like to tell other advisors now that, you know, it's, I, I very strongly feel like it's those of us that feel like we don't have the time for this sort of involvement that need it the most. Um, you know, I mean, you're a great example, Matt, of someone who, you know, as far as we can tell, seems to be thriving and you do everything. <laughs> and I think it's because it feeds your soul. It feeds your passion for advising for the field. And uh, and that makes you love what you do. I mean, it, it, it's a reciprocal thing. <laughs> you, yep. you do that because you love what you do and it keeps you loving what you do. And so I tell as many advisors as I can that, that this Nakata involvement, you know, whether it's just presenting here and there or I personally love 
holding elected positions. I like being involved consistently throughout the year and through many different things, through the conferences and goals and all that good stuff. You know, whatever it is, there's something for you that will feed one of your passions, you know, or, you know, you've got your Ben Hopper people that are good with dates. I know he gets paid for it, but, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, there's like region rep positions and stuff, you know, there's a lot of overseeing of details and stuff that you have to do that there are people out there that like that, that are good Mm. for that, you know? So, so I just want people to to think about all the different ways that there is to get involved in the cottage, not just presenting, but that's a huge part of it. It's not just holding elected office, but you can do that. <laughs> but if you don't have that connection to the field, I think then it, you do run at more of a risk of, I don't have time. I'm just barely keeping up, you know, because, well, you're not engaging with those that are able to share those practices for improvement, at least those that have the same perspective or a similar perspective. You know, you can talk to your friends and family and stuff, but they don't totally get it because, well, we ourselves can barely explain what we do <laughs> on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I was going to ask, like, what advice do you have for people thinking about getting into Nakata positions? And I feel like you just answered that perfectly with it. So you you, you already knew what I was going to ask. Apparently, that that's amazing. <laughs> and I want to go to like your publications because you've published three times or so so far. What have your publications been on? So um, I write about my experiences, typically. Um, So I did academic advising today uh, a few years ago. What did I? Yeah, I I, kind of about my story and um, how my liberal arts education, you know, being encouraged to study everything that was interesting to me and then just that making me never want to leave college, you know, led to where I am. Um, So so there's that article in academic advising today. And then... um, Probably the one that I was most excited and proud of was um, after the common reading in uh, in Louisville. It was about um, George Steele and Eric White's article about um, in in the uh, the Mentor, which is the Penn State Journal. And oh gosh, and now I'm I'm, I'm struggling. It was about something something about customer service, um, academic advising, and you know being educators versus customer mm-hmm. service. Um, at least that's what spoke to me about it. Um, that's kind of my style. I might read a sentence or two and like, bam, idea, you know, <laughs> and then I run with it. So I had some thoughts to share in the common read in response to that article. And then I remember Ruth Darling, all these names, Eric White, George Steele, Ruth Darling, that I had only ever heard of. And then I was talking to these people like, whoa. Um, uh, coming up to me after that and saying she really liked some of what I had to say and I should consider writing. And I was like, cool, sure, you know. And then, um, and I, now I feel bad I forget her name, but I believe it's the editor of The Mentor, um, then emailed me, just cold email, wondering if I'd be interested in writing a response article. So um, I, along with two other um, advising professionals, um, were invited to write response articles, sort of, to, to Steele and White's article, and those were published in The Mentor. So that was really exciting. And then more recently, my friend Becky and I just kind of a fun project on the side. Um, there was this humor in advising uh, book. It, it's um, it's like an online, like on Kindle. Um, but there were several other advisors that wrote in it. And we just kind of shared either, um, you know, how, how you bring, you know, approach your appointments and whatnot with humor. But Becky and I, we, we, we didn't feel like explaining how to be funny, you know, that sort of thing that feels like, um, you know, I think there's like a Mark Twain quote about something about dissecting a frog. Gosh, I'm butchering it. 
<laughs> someone's gonna someone is gonna hear this and be like okay i know what you're talking about <laughs> so you're gonna get an email and be like well actually it was this <laughs> yeah we need to redo this portion of the interview uh, <laughs> something about mark twain explaining humor is like dissecting a frog it's not funny anymore so anyways so becky and i just shared some experiences of ours and stuff like um you know vignettes about yeah. <laughs> um for me it was a couple of unfortunate interviews that i experienced uh <laughs> funny things that happened at advising conferences some funny things that happened in appointments and stuff and just kind of letting the reader read that and and find the funny in it themselves um so yeah so those are my three things thus far but um i've i've got i mean i can't even tell you how many dozens of drafts of like I'll just one day have an idea and just start typing a paragraph and then mm -hmm. I almost never go back to that again. I'm sure a lot of <laughs> other folks do that, but sometime I might, sometimes I might take several of those and jam them together. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, I, I seek to continue publishing because writing is probably, I mean, I like talking, but I really, really uh, enjoy writing and, and find myself to be pretty proud of the things that I write afterwards because I can go back and massage and edit as much as I right. want. <laughs> so yeah, you, so you've done the publishing and then you've also presented a lot as well. And yeah. many of which was on wellness. And I know that's a topic that's been popular, especially during the pandemic and wellness and self-care. So I guess with, in your opinion, like what do you find there's maybe some tips that I don't know that someone listening might be like, I, I, I want some help with that. You know, any mm -hmm. advice you have for them? So I, um, outside of getting involved with Nakata, which I, I preach constantly, um, to just to have that community, that support, that people that aren't in it yet, just don't understand until you get into it. You, we both know it's invaluable. That's huge. But I was just talking to a colleague yesterday, and I'm like a broken record about this. There is no reason to have your email on your phone. There's not. Okay. Now, if you're an advising administrator, and that's the only way that you're your um, uh, staff can get in touch with you and they need to let you know, you know, they're out sick, different things like that. There's emergencies that I understand as a primary role advisor between eight and four, I'm on my computer and that's when I receive emails and I'm fully responsive for my students and everyone. I don't need to know if I've received emails after 4 PM until 8 AM the next day. That doesn't mean no good. And so I hear the, the amount of times that I hear from other advisors about the email being going off on the weekend or at night or different things like that. And some of them will even say, well, I shut off my notifications. We still see, you still know that that's there and it's so accessible. Mm -hmm. And we know how addicting that can be to go back and check it. Um, I have been an advisor for almost eight years and I've never once had email on my phone. And I, I just as simple, I, I like little morsels like that, like a very, you know, tangible, here's something you can do. And so that is a huge wellness tip of mine. Take your email off your phone. There are a lot of advisors who agree that there is no such thing as an advising emergency. We know that there are gray areas that if it's something that we did, we can ask for an exception, an extension, different things like that. Why, why would it be healthy for you to deal with that on a Sunday morning when you should be enjoying home time with your family or your, your cat sleeping on the couch back there? You know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if I can, that's just my little, my super simple might seem obvious to some, but to others, it's the craziest thing they can think of. Is anybody forcing you to have email on your phone? If they're not, take it off. What's your cat's name? Patsy Klein. Patsy Klein. All right. Nice. Yes. I thought she would make an appearance because she, uh, she's notorious for this mm -hmm. during my Nakata meetings. 
Illicata meetings, different things like that, mm-hmm. that she, that's when she decides to wake up and start screaming at me for attention. <laughs> um, and of course now, you know, when she could really get some spotlight, you know, she's happily asleep. Kathy. Cats anyway. are always on their time. <laughs> that, well said. That is really well said. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but you mentioning the email app, like when you mentioned it right now, my initial thought was like, nah, I'm going to, st- I have it on my phone. Like, no. And then you start thinking about, okay, is there really an advising emergency? Can it really just be done the next day? And then you're talking about, yeah, if we make a mistake, I can call someone, hey, there's, can we get an extension? Or can I get that substitute? Or can you put them in that class? <laughs> like there are ways around it. And now I'm just one of those, like, I'm afraid to delete it. But I, <laughs> but now you're, you're really making me think with that one. So I okay, appreciate well, I'm that. Glad to hear, oh, I'm glad to yes. hear that. Well, and it is tough because you have that curiosity. It, it, there's some peace of mind when you know that emails aren't coming in. That's mm-hmm. a big thing. Like if you've ever had to like block someone's phone number or anything like that. Right. It's like, well, but it's nice to know when they're not trying to reach out to me or, yeah. so, you know, on social media or something like that. But ultimately, if I can wean myself off of that because it's just an addiction on my part, there's no reason for me to have to know and I'm not getting paid to know outside <laughs> those hours. Not just, you know, I'll work beyond, you know, not to sound like I, ch- I shut it off at four. We don't all have that luxury. But right. when I'm logged off my computer, which is the only place I really should be answering emails because that's where all the, the information is, um, you know, there, there's no reason for me to think about those things. And honestly, that's a better time than for me to be able to decompress and think about bigger picture ideas, right? Mm-hmm. So, and how could I do that if I'm still bogged down by a uh, chemistry prerequisite? Damn it. <laughs> well, at the next region conference or region meeting, uh, message me or, or ask me flat out in front of everyone, Matt, did you delete your, your email app? I'm going and, to. Yes. <laughs> and, and if I can take that one step further, the one thing that I do sometimes have to check for, you know, on the weekends and different things is, is Nakata stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. while I do a lot of my Nakata stuff during work, a lot of it is my personal passion and a lot of you are my friends now. So I, you know, that stuff I like to keep up on. And so that's something I've been thinking about for a while is that I would like to start directing all my Nakata stuff to my personal. I do, of course, have my personal email on my phone for bills and things, you know, but for my work email, I'd like to be able to totally separate that so that, you know, I, there's no chance that I see a situation that's going to stress me out when Mm. I'm supposed to be decompressing for me and for the student. (laughs) hundred percent. And, you know, so you gave some tips on, you know, for, for wellness and in your opinion, is, are there any misconceptions that you think people have when they hear like wellness or hear self-care? Um, well, yeah, you know, I mean, certainly, certainly there are, you know, with regard to that, there are just, you know, that there's only a few ways to do certain things, you know, to Mm -hmm. each their own. Um, like, like exercise is a big thing that I get myself down about because you think, you know, it's only worth it if you're going to really go hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, something that I've been really trying to, and, you know, you think primarily about the physical benefits of exercise that I need to get in shape. My pants aren't sitting as well because I've been sitting for 17 months, Uh, (laughs) but you know, over the pandemic, I really started realizing how much just a little bit of physical activity consistently helps Mm -hmm. me mentally. And that's become more important to me um, than the physical benefit of, of getting physical activity. So yes, it's nice to have the pants fit better um, and to be more confident in that way, but I'm sharper when I get, you know, even just 10, 15 minutes of, you know, a little bit of cycling or 
walking around the block or something than if I, you know, every couple of days, I'm like, oh my God, I haven't gotten off my butt. I need to go work out now for 45 minutes. And then I feel the next couple of days, like, <laughs> I, like either I'm too tired or, okay, I did it. I caught up, you know, on right. all that I needed. Um, so that's kind of where my head goes because that's where I struggle the most is um, good routines, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, it, if I can teach myself a lesson there, you know, that, that it doesn't have to be like all or nothing, mm-hmm. little bits at a time. <laughs> and uh, I, think that's a, I think that can be taken into, um, you know, the context of wellness in so many different ways, you know, sure. whether it's therapy, meditation, you know, eating well, getting exercise. Mm-hmm spiritual, whatever, you know, on and on and on Just little, little bits here and there consistently might be more effective than a you know, big burst. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now it's been said that your greatest thrill in advising rests in developing other advisors. What do you feel it is about developing advisors that makes this a passion for you? I, you know, Matt, if I'll be honest, I, I think I'm still trying to figure it out myself because mm-hmm. it's something that I only just realized maybe in the past six months, mm-hmm. um, you know, seven years or something into your career, I think is a, is, is the common time for folks to start considering a career change. Mm-hmm. I think there's, I think there's some literature behind that and I'm not looking at getting out of this field by any means, but I'm realizing that it is less, um, and I'm not afraid to say this anymore. It's less the face-to-face interactions with my students. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm enjoying. And it's more seeing other advisors develop and um, getting them to look at advising as a profession, you know, at, at bare minimum. <laughs> um, you know, I think for a lot of advisors and not to discount them at all, but it's easy to to end up in advising at your at your home institution, at your alma mater, right? Mm-hmm. And though you have wonderful and valuable knowledge about that institution, um, Sometimes I think that challenges the professionalization of advising because it's just kind of a student affairs thing that they slipped into somewhere mm-hmm. along the way. Um, and so when I get other advisors to, you know, recognize the value of, or, you know, even to just attend a Nakata conference and to say that they learned something useful or, um, or if another advisor tells me that I shared something with them that was useful, you know, um, today I was sharing something about my zoom link with another advisor like wow you just made that so much easier and that gives me such a little thrill like okay i've been doing this long enough that i i i kind of have some good ideas for how to manage your practice and if i can share that with others and then they can do a better job well then i'm impacting even more than just my caseload and so maybe that's what it is that i feel like it's farther reaching um also though in a more what's the word here i guess maybe in a more immature note um I don't want children. I don't typically like children, so I like other adults. (laughs) And so I think that's part of where it's coming to is that I, you know, I start to lose my patience advising those that are so much younger than me. And, you know, again, I I do the best job I can for my students and they feel the love and support and it's it's there, but I'm just Mm -hmm. starting to recognize that it is um, other advisors, other adults that I, that I want to work with <laughs> no yeah. offense to my students. Many of yeah. them are adults. I know that sounds so silly, but it's like the simplest thing to realize. Like, oh, well, I don't want children. No wonder I find myself a little impatient right. with <laughs> children. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of ways that it, that it connects and like, you know, yeah, fires on <laughs> different things. <for> me. <laughs> so I do hope to transition that into, you know, yeah, if I can eventually go into a position where I'm doing more of the training and mm-hmm. developing. And, um, you know, I have been very fortunate in my job now because I express some of this mm-hmm. to my new supervisor because she's an advisor. 
Um, and that's the first time I've ever reported to another advisor. And um, she quickly set me up with opportunities to do some professional development things for the other advisors in our office when that was admittedly a thing that we had not really been doing for a little while. And she knows it's something I'm hugely passionate about. And I think that was really smart of her. Like she's got so much going on. You've got a person here asking to do this extra thing, not necessarily for extra money yet. Um, (laughs) And so so I've been very excited to have some opportunities to, uh, yeah, engage in, um, professional development, what, like tomorrow we're doing an advising retreat with um, mm-hmm. some of us on the our, our campus advising network, just things that I hadn't seen happen in my two and a half years at Paul that I'm really glad that um, people are receptive to. And, and so I, I see myself kind of doing some of those extracurricular things more on top of my caseload and hopefully one day, you know, getting, getting an actual position where I can, yeah, train and develop other advisors. That's, that's what I'm passionate about, I think, now. Uh, well, you're definitely building that that experience as it is now. So you'll be ready to go when, when they're like, hey, <laughs> we need someone for this. When the, I'm here. <laughs> the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I think I think actually this is an example of me attempting to call mm-hmm. before I walk. So yeah. we're trying, you know, we're seeing. <laughs> there's, this, there's this theme here, the theme that's going on. <laughs> you see, we're trying a little different here this time. <laughs> And maybe aside from that, you know, now, you know, we're recording this in December. This is going out on our 50th episode in January. Mm-hmm. It'll be a new year. Any other type of goals in particular that you're hoping to continue um, or start in the new year? Oh, my goodness. Let me get my ideas. Notebook and everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, with Region 5, you know, I started, uh, we started this Take 5 virtual monthly thing um, that I'm very excited about you know, there's no reason for us to not all stay virtually connected with it being so easy these days. And and we find those times to be so fun. Um, On a more personal note with my practice, I've been saying forever that I want to do more swift advising type of things, um, which I guess would not be terribly surprising considering how I've indicated I'm a little impatient with, and it is, you know, the saying the same old thing and stuff. And it's like, I know that I could do better and that I could teach them better by being more intentional about the resources ahead of time, you know, that they access um, and, and how I teach that to them. So I think that there's a lot I have to learn. I've kind of dabbled. I've kind of dipped my toes. I attended a pre-conference with George Steele and David Gray um, during last year's virtual, but then I just had no, no time after that to implement anything. So um, my good buddy, JP Villavicencio from UW-Whitewater, I think you had him on before. Um, he, he has um, done a lot with Swift Advising. So I've got wonderful resources in my phone, like on my text, you know, <laughs> to, to ask about these things to, um, to really start it. So, so I, I, I want to continue getting DePaul advisors involved for their benefit, you know, in professional development. But then I also want to re-examine our existing advising practice and see how, um, just, I mean, obviously how we can improve without reinventing the wheel. And because I feel like, at least for me, I'm doing it in every appointment, I'm reinventing the wheel. <laughs> so <laughs> I would like to do something that helps us all that everyone can get on board with. So it's kind of, kind of grand, kind of a <laughs> large goal, but you know, some successes can be found in there along the way, I'm sure. <laughs> sure, sure. And we've gone over a lot in, in this interview, a lot of stories that you've had, a lot of shout outs, a lot of tidbits of information, especially with the wellness portion of it too. So if anyone listening has any questions, they want to connect, what's the best way for them to reach you? 
Yes. Um, give me, drop me a jingle. I like to say, cause my email is J E N G L E jingle at DePaul.edu. Um, that would be the best way. Um, though I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook. I'm not, I'm not on, um, as many things as some of the more hip advisors, wink, wink, Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, find me on Facebook. I love to chat. And, um, and as I tell anybody, you know, if, uh, if we connect and I see at a conference, uh, I'm, I'm good for one drink. I'll get you one drink. Okay. Cause I like to, <laughs> I like to have a good happy hour with my new advising friends. So <laughs> it's the quickest way to my heart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Thank you so much for being on this podcast episode. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you again. This is great. Thank you guys for what this does for the professionalization of advising. And I promise I didn't practice that. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie, thank you so much for talking to us about wellness and self-care. I mean, this is a topic that is so very important, especially over these last couple of years. And also talking about your Nakata involvement, a lot of great information. And last but not least, we have Dr. Melinda Anderson back to give a start of the year message for you and everyone in advising. Here we go. And let's give a warm welcome back to Dr. Melinda Anderson from the Nakata Executive Office. Melinda was on episode 49 last time and gave us an end of the year message. So it always seemed logical to have Melinda on for episode 50 to give us a start of the year message for 2022. Melinda, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. We, we made it to the end of 2021. Now we're at the start of 2022. Do you do anything with New Year's resolutions? You know, actually, I do. Every uh, It's a tradition to always tell myself that I'm going to be in the gym, sweating it out with everybody else, and I'm going to lose uh, another 40 pounds. You know what I mean? <laughs> Actually, um, I'm being cheeky, but, you know, I think it is important to think about, you know, wellness, mm-hmm. you know, and so the beginning of each year, I always tell myself, you know, how do I think about balance and, and, and wellness in terms of mind, body and spirit. And so I always think about how am I going to kickstart that at the end of, I mean, at the beginning of each year. So do you, do you indulge in the uh, old tradition of uh, New Year's resolutions? In in a way, I do. Like I, I, I don't end up calling up New Year's resolutions anymore. I'll just call them goals, like we do throughout the year. Because I feel like if I do, if I say it's a New Year's resolution, I'll start. I'll be very good, and I'll start the first couple months, maybe you know, w- with my goal, and then after that, I kind of fall off. Um, so I like to even try to start my goals like before the new year, so at least mm-hmm. I can kind of build a habit with it. So a lot of times, it's usually like. Well, let, let me read more books or, you know, whatever it might be. But I think I kind of agree with you that I think for this one, I want to really focus on myself and and my wellness as well. Yeah, no, um, that's actually I love that idea of just calling it a goal because you're right. When I think New Year's resolutions, right, I think the habit is also to like let them uh, peter off because you know how like have you ever seen like a gym in the beginning of the year? Like everybody's out there working it out like, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. run an Ironman, you know, event. And then, you know, by February, it's like, hey, it's just like the people who've always been there. Right. <laughs> months, right. So but no, I think that especially this year, given everything that, you know, we've experienced, you know, the past couple of years, I definitely really want wellness to to kind of really sit, you know, on top of mind. 
And so with this being the new year, I heard you're going to be going to all the Nakata region conferences throughout beginning, I guess, in February throughout spring. Is this true? And how excited are you for this? I know the rumors are true. Rumor has it. Mm, mm, rumor has it. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no worries. Oh, yes. But the rumors are true. Um, I when I came into this position, you know, it was important for me um, as executive director to just kind of get a sense of, you know, the events and the programs, the activities that we put together. And so when I think about the regions and, you know, I grew up in the regions when I think about my leadership roles uh, when I was a member of Nakata. And so when I thought about a great way to be able to kind of if you think about like a listening tour, right, talking to members, talking to administrators, getting a sense of what people were wanting from the association and what was going to be able to help support them as they support students. I thought that definitely going to the regional events would be um a really great way to be able to have a listening ear to what's going on. And so you're absolutely right. We start in Mystic, Connecticut uh, in February, and then we roll all the way into May. Um, and so it's going to be a very interesting experience. And and I'll be excited to come see you uh, by way of uh, California yep. you know, for Region 9. And so we'll be out there your way. And so that'll be really exciting. To yeah. Be in yeah. Yeah. And I think for listeners, if you've never met Melinda, this will be a great opportunity to meet Melinda at a region conference. Because, you know, when you think of the annual conference, large event, right? <laughs> you know, very hard to run into someone because it's, you're in this convention center, so many things that are going on. And so this is kind of like a more intimate uh, setting in a way. Usually these conferences have a few hundred uh, people in attendance. So it gives more of an opportunity to actually talk to people. And in this case, <laughs> have a chance to, to chat with you and kind of give their opinions of Nakata, what they're looking for, you know, hopefully what um, they can gain from the Nakata membership and from future conferences. So, yeah, I think this will be a great opportunity if you're attending a region conference. Hey, go go find Melinda or she'll find you and oh, you can yeah. ha have a nice conversation. You know, absolutely. You know, Matt, I just love the way that you um, talked about the region uh, conferences. You do. You, are you a region chair? I don't know. I can't really I, figure it out. You should yeah. be a region chair. Mm, I'll, I'll think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did. A, you know, I actually absolutely agree with you. The annual conferences are a great opportunity, right? When you think about kind of you know, all the opportunities, you know, you have so many presentation opportunities to engage in, you can deliver a presentation, but then also the regional um, conferences, what I loved about being in the region, um, and when I think about kind of my role when I was coming up, is that you're right, that level of intimacy that you can get, you know, you're still getting the professional development opportunities, you're still able to present. So if you haven't, um, been to a regional conference experience, I really encourage you to um, could check one out. It's really a great way when you think about where you sit, you know, locally uh, in terms of the way that you think about building community. It's a really great way to come. And I know that at this point, many people have already submitted their proposals. And so those decisions are being made in terms of what's going to be accepted. Um, so I really encourage people to come to the region conference experience. It's very different than an annual conference. Um, and which is by design, right? When you think about the level of intimacy that you're talking about and then meeting people who are sitting close to you from 
uh, when you talk about proximity um, in terms of where you are um, in the country. So, um, so I really encourage people to take advantage of it. And then when I think about um, the institutes are also something that's going to be going on in the spring. And so when we think about the difference between an institute and an annual conference and a region conference, right, I always get that question, like, what are the differences between all these events and activities and which one is should I engage in and which one's for me? The institutes are really a a particular focus, right, on a particular area. So when you think about like the assessment institute that we have, um, the assessment institute does a really great, and I went to the assessment institute. If you're looking at a way to think about how am I assessing like student learning outcomes for my advising program and how am I taking that information and doing continuous improvement processes in order to make sure that I'm hitting the goals of my advising program. You know, you're coming into this experience where you're just focusing on getting that skill set and thinking differently about how you're building that assessment program for your advising unit. Uh, and then the administrative institute, if you're a senior level administrator versus, you know, I'm a new, you know, director to advising or I'm aspiring to be a, a director of an advising program, you're thinking about what are some of the challenges or issues or opportunities as an administrator in, in terms of some of the things that we're thinking about um, from an advising, academic advising perspective, but it's narrowly focused. And then you have presentations that you're engaged in, and then you're building um, a program or a plan at the end of the day that you're walking home with. So it's very different from a conference experience where you're just learning about different things. With the institutes, you're walking away with a plan or an action plan to bring back to your campus. And so those would be the ways that I would talk about the differences of our programming. So I really encourage people to, to think about that as an opportunity for professional development as they think about their new year goals and, and resolutions in terms of their professional development growth. Yeah. And, and so I saw you mentioned with the Administrators Institute that it's like if you're aspiring to be, let's say, a director or administrator, but then also like if you're a coordinator, uh, you oversee an advising mm -hmm. center, you're a lead advisor, like those are also individuals that can go to the Administrators Institute. So I think when they see the word administrator, they might think, oh, that's not me. But when you actually look on the website and it lists like these are the individuals that could also be attending it's a wide range yeah. of different people. Oh, absolutely, Matt. And I'm so glad you said that because I think, well, not I think, I know and in, in, in higher education titles can mean so many things, right? It's really about your role and responsibility. So if you have oversight of a unit that supports student success, it supports academic advising initiatives, right? So you're absolutely right. A coordinator does that. Faculty uh, advising coordinators do that, right? And so it's not just, you know, frontline um, or uh, advisors or a full, pro fully professional advising uh, units. We also encourage faculty advising um, units to also take a look at the Administrative Institute because it's really talking about, like I mentioned earlier, those broader topics around the administration. And I think that that's probably really what we want people to hone in on. It's the administration pieces of managing um, policies, procedures? What are the philosophical things that we need to be thinking about as we're moving these programs forward for the success of all of our students? And so we have the topics listed on the website. And so sometimes people are like, well, what are you going to be talking about in these institutes, Melinda? And so we always tell students, I mean, tell um, those who are interested, you know, going on the website, taking a look at the topics that we're going to be discussing. Our seminar actually is a one and a half day experience that sits in between our institutes. The seminar actually is going to be talking about advising redesign 
redesign. And so we really have had a lot of institutions that are saying, okay, we know that our enrollment goals, you know, maybe our enrollments are, are decreasing. What are some ways that we think about redesigning our offices in order to help support retention and, and persistence efforts? What are some things that we need to be thinking about with advising career ladders? You know, the great resignation is what we've been talking about a little bit. So how do we keep with advisor retention? I know, Matt, we talked a little bit about that. You know, so it's one of those things where we have a seminar just designed to have those conversations as well. And that is definitely for anybody uh, to engage in that level of conversation. And then the biggest part for me is, so then what do we do about it? What are the things that we think about that we're going to take back to our campuses and then how do we move forward? And that's why I love the institutes, because we work with you. You have consultants. They review your plan of action in terms of what are your next steps when you get back to your campus? Yeah. And then later on in the year, usually there's summer institutes. There's an international conference. Do you have any update on any of those? Yes. So the Summer Institute, um, that is going to be in Erie, Pennsylvania. And so that is going to be in June. And then we have another session that's going to be in July. So there'll be two. And so we definitely want people to think about that. Now, that's a longer experience, definitely. And so really, that's an opportunity for people to get um, more content and just like I mentioned earlier, walking away with an action plan. So very much the, the institutes are, are designed like that in the summer, um, but give you a little bit more time with faculty and content. The international conference, it, it is going to be uh, virtual again this year. You know, when you think about our global partners and when you think about what it means to uh, be a global community from academic advising perspective, you know, uh, the pandemic continues in terms of, you know, can we travel? Where would we travel? What does that look like right now? And so we, when we thought about partnering with other uh, advising communities globally, so UCAT and LBSA um, are going to be two of the partners that we're going to connect with in order to put together an academic advising summit. And so we are going to be holding it virtually, but we're going to be partnering with two of a really strong advising uh, communities um, in uh, the Netherlands and in the UK. And so I think that it's going to be really exciting opportunity for Nakata to partner with um, a global advising community. Um, sorry, advising um, professional organizations so that we can come together and really start talking about this larger question around student success and what does it look like, right, in this current climate. Um, and so that is going to be held um, a little later in September when you think about how all of our campuses uh, calendars kind of come together. So traditionally, we would hold it in June, um, but we're probably going to be holding it a little uh, probably in mid to late September. So, it, you know, our annual conference is a little later this year. So it's actually pretty perfect timing because it gets us through orientation. It gets us through the, when school starts, you know, and we think about our students who are, on, I mean, our campuses that are on quarters. So it's actually kind of perfect timing for us to think about moving it virtually, but then also holding it at a different time this year. But then next year, when we think about, uh, you know, an international conference, we are thinking about holding it on site. Um, and so our fingers are crossed. And so uh, stay tuned, you know, in terms of where that location is going to be. But we are really excited to be able to get back to holding an international conference on site. And so it's just going to take us a little bit more time as we kind of manage and navigate this, um, the, the pandemic space. Yeah. And I think 
a lot of people are very understanding of it. Yeah, it's a little bummer. It can't go, let's say, overseas for, for many people to go to an international conference, but we'll still have it virtual, more than likely have one in on site the following year. And there is something special about attending an international conference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I can speak to that as well, but it is something where I, I do believe if anyone gets the opportunity to go to an international conference in person, Go do it. It, it. It'll be well worth it. And you're mentioning the annual conference. So that's going to be in October, a little bit later in October, so October uh, 23rd through the 26th. And that's going to be in Portland, which I think is very exciting for many people because normally we don't necessarily see annual conferences on the West Coast as much. How right. excited are you for that? I am so pumped to be in Portland. And and let me tell you, we are we are really excited. Uh, you know, um, annual conference this past um, year, you know, in Cincinnati was was a great experience. You know, it was my first one as executive director, so you know, it, will, it was like, wow, my gosh, you know. Um, and so, when you think about, you know, as we come, you know, in 2022, we're excited, you know, to continue our professional development efforts. And so when we think about as we move through this year to Portland, we're just really super excited um, to be on the West Coast because you're absolutely right. When you think about kind of how we move conferences around, it's it's been a minute since we've been to the West. And so I know people are going to be very excited to be in Portland. And when you think about just the energy, right? I always, I joke around the executive office and I say that, you know, the annual conference is kind of like, you know, that that culminating experience of when, you know, everybody's coming back together and, you know, we haven't seen each other all year. And, you know, it's just an opportunity for us to kind of come together, to think about the best ways, the best practices. And, you know, I encourage people to always think about applying, you know, you know, I'm sorry, I say applying, submitting a proposal, you know, for the uh, conference experience. um, And then also just participating in in many different ways. And then it's also an opportunity for all of our NACA leaders to come together because they work so hard throughout the year and just an opportunity to come together and to see each other and just to, I guess, just be in the midst sometimes when you think about the community. The biggest piece about Nakata when I think about it is the community that we are creating um, between all of us, right? When we think about what academic advising is and, and how we're moving in this profession. And so I think coming to the annual conference uh, in Portland, it's going to give us an opportunity to, to exhale, to learn new things uh, and to be together again. So I'm really excited about being in Portland. Yeah, and you mentioned proposals. So if if anyone listening to this in January or part of February, the deadline is February 21st to submit a proposal. And you can submit it for a pre-conference workshop, a concurrent session, a a poster session. So various uh, types of opportunities you have for submitting a proposal. And the theme is building bridges, honoring our past, celebrating the present, and preparing for the future. And I feel like everything that you've talked about already kind of encompasses that that theme. And so I think whether you're going to an institute, a region conference, annual conference, international, virtually, there's going to be something that you're going to gain, something that, that you're going to learn. And speaking of attending one of these, whether it is an institute, a region conference, uh, international, annual conference, many people want to go. But, you know, maybe right now, and I've asked Chris Kirchhoff this a couple of episodes ago, Budget's an issue with a lot of institutions. 
there's a lot of different priorities and maybe professional development for some departments isn't necessarily a top priority right now. And a lot of advising professionals are, like you mentioned, we need to work on wellness. A lot of them are bogged down with just mm. constant work, appointments, et cetera. What's your advice for, for them that want to go to a conference, but they may not have as much a support as, as, as they would need? Right. No, you know, Matt, um, I'm glad that you asked me that question because it is a reality when you think about campuses, you know, especially if you're in a really large staff, for example, or even of a small staff, right? Can I afford to lose you for a couple of days when work continues and students still need you? Or a really large staff when you think about equity, right? Like who gets to go and, and who can't go? Um I will say with the institutes, we do have scholarship opportunities. So for people who are really interested in going to an institute and they haven't been before, we do have um, institute scholarships um, that are um, available for people to apply for. And so I would really encourage people to check that out. And so going to, you know, your supervisor and letting them know that I have an opportunity to attend this uh, event, but then here's some financial support that Nakata is willing to provide to help decrease um, the cost of attendance. Um, that usually does help supervisors to know that, okay, this person is really coming to me with a a plan. <laughs> they're not just asking for money, but they're wanting, you know, my support. And then they're also looking for ways to defray the cost uh, of being able to attend. Uh, and so that um, often can help with um, getting support in order to uh, attend a conference. I think also in terms of, for example, when we think about okay, if I'm on a really small staff or a really large staff, you know, I think professional development when you start talking about philosophically, how do you continue to improve processes? How do you continue to, to get stronger, to help students? How do you look at data and analyze that and become efficient? How do you continue to help students where you need to help students, right? So working smarter and not harder. Those are all the things that when I would you know, when I was working on campus and I was talking to my supervisors, I know that sometimes just these conversations of what it is that I hope to learn and to bring back to my campus is one way to start the conversation about why professional development is needed. I think sometimes just like wellness, right? It's the first thing that goes because it's things that feels the easiest, right? Like, do I need to go to that conference? Do I need to go to that event? You know, do I do I need to strengthen myself in these areas if I'm not going to put it into immediate use? And so I always encourage people to think about professional development as as not the hospital. Right. Like something's broken. So now I need to go fix it. But to think of it as the gym. Right. Think of it as a way to get stronger, to improve processes so that you can continue to. Not get burnt out. Right. Working smarter, not harder pr protects against burnout. When people ask me the question around career ladders, you know, if you're an administrator and you're thinking about retention for your advisors and so you don't have gaps, you know, these uh, events, these institutes, they're designed in a way to help support your, your thinking and to build community to start thinking about how you protect yourself against those things, right? And so that you don't find yourself with those gaps, right? And then now you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I keep moving forward? Because we want to make sure that students continue to be supported. And so those are the, the philosophical reasons why I would say that professional development should not be the first thing that you think of, of when you go. 
when I think about from a financial standpoint, you know, I always ask the question, what do you stop, start and continue? What are the things that you could stop paying for because you need to start paying for other things, right? What are the things that are not really working for you, but you're just used to doing them? Right. And so that might be one way to determine if there is room in the budget for things that you need to start doing in order to continue to improve and to get better. Um, And so the other thing that I think about professional development budgets, when you start thinking about who should go right, you know, it becomes an equity piece. You know, I think about time, roles and responsibilities. And when I think in that way, when you think about equity in terms of what people are learning, not everybody can go to everything, right? So maybe this year they go to this annual conference and the next year, you know, the other group, you know, we lay our information out, you know, up to four years in advance. So then people know exactly where our conferences are going to be. So I say all that to say, right, these are not just going to be easy decisions. They're going to require communication. They're going to re- require sometimes for you to lay out a plan. They're going to require for you to think through, what do I stop doing so that I can start doing the things that are going to really matter to continue to improve? You know, when you think about tying enrollment, you know, uh, you know, enrollments dipping down on campuses and you're tying that to maybe the budgets and the expenditures that you have. Those can be really hard decisions to make. Right. We need to do more of this in order to make sure that we're sustaining what's happening on our campuses. But I always tell people that the value we're we're in learning institutions, the value of educating and to continue to get stronger and to get smarter are invaluable. Right. And professional development is one way that we get it done. And then I also encourage people that we do have tutorials. We do have you know, webinars, there are ways to get professional development in virtual settings, right? Now, of course, we're talking about, you know, in-person events. And so I think that it is an opportunity, right, for you to kind of come into an environment and, and be fully engaged. Uh, and But virtual opportunities for those who do have budget constraints or they're trying to put a lot of information, I'm um, trying to connect a lot of their, you know, for example, it would be great to have a webinar and then you have, you know, professional development opportunity for your entire campus. And so I always encourage those opportunities as well because they work really, really well. Um, but, you know, I know that our focus today was just a little bit on um, the in-person um, events and everything like that. But that would be kind of just my my quick thoughts about how to help people understand, like, number one, the importance of professional development, not to let it fall by the wayside. It's just too critical now in terms of the way that we're operating in this space around um, student success and academic advising practices. Oh, yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, it's something where professional development should not be pushed off to the side or we'll we'll get to it later. Let's just get through this. Like it needs to be incorporated in in whether it's the department or the individual. It is something that should be ongoing. And like we did last episode, I want to do the same thing for this one with our time remaining as now we start 2022. What's your message to advise professionals as a start of the year message? Yes, it is that time. When I think about the beginning of the year, my hopes for all of our members in the association is that you are looking into this new year with hope and opportunity, that you're stepping into the spaces that you need to be in, that you are thinking about how you will continue to grow and move into excellence and find yourself in wonderful spaces to continue to grow around community and to be there um, 
in support of your students, your colleagues, um, in support of all the things that you need to keep moving forward um, that will keep you balanced and to keep you um, well and keep you in safe spaces. When I think about the new year, I know many of us might keep reflecting on the past, but the one thing that I want to keep people in mind is something that I've been reflecting on myself. We take who we are always with us, but we want to remember who we're trying to become. And that evolution is what we're always striving for. And so I wish people peace and wellness and and hope as they move into this new year. And I think people listening right now are definitely agree and take that to heart. So Melinda, thank you so much for being on as always. And I look forward to having you on future episodes with some more interviews. Yes. Thank you again. And Matt, I cannot tell you enough about how wonderful this opportunity has been for me to, to be able to engage with you in Adventures in Advising and the space that you've provided so many professionals to talk about their love of academic advising. And then just to be able to express themselves and for people to get to know them in, in virtual spaces that people wouldn't have been able to know them otherwise. So thank you again for all the work that you do and that you'll continue to do. I heart you, Matt Markin. I heart you too. I appreciate that. And hey, we're at episode 50. So let's do another 50 more. All right. Sounds good to me. Melinda, thank you as always for being part of this podcast since November. I truly appreciate you and your dedication to academic advising. That does it for us. For our first episode of 2022, check out our YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. Again, Happy New Year. We have a lot to look forward to this year. Best to you, and let's keep at it. Until next time, keep advising. Mm -hmm.